Today I'm talking with Zach Sprunger, a longtime friend who started a really interesting local business several years back called Rogue Music Lessons. Rogue Music Lessons is a centralized music studio that allows people to take music lessons in a convenient place with vetted instructors. Rogue Music Lessons is like the Uber of music education. They do the marketing, the customer acquisition, and hire music teachers to teach lessons to the students. It's a really cool business that's been growing quite rapidly the last few years. Beyond this, Zach is an extremely interesting and intelligent person with a lot of interests. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Tell, tell me a little history of uh, Rogue Music Lessons. How did it come to be? What was the inspiration and all that? Uh, well, it started with me uh, just by myself. Mm -hmm. um, I was on my own. I live in kind of uh, doing my own thing. About 17, I kind of moved out. And I was trying to figure shit out. Yeah. <laughs> and I got hired on a construction job. And uh, I had immediately got tendonitis in both of my wrists and had to wear braces. Dang. And I was up on a ladder nailing in some beam and I managed to miss the nail, ricochet off the beam, hit myself in the eye and knock myself off the ladder. And I'm laying in the dirt and my boss comes up to me, looks over at me, he's laughing. He goes, you are the worst construction worker I have ever had. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, oh, okay. But he kind of like laughs it off. But he comes back to me that later that day and he goes, uh, I, you play guitar, right? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, you want to like teach my kids how to play guitar? Yeah. I was like, sure, okay. And I came to his house and started working with him. And I was like, this is significantly easier. And yeah. okay, I can do this. Started doing it on my own and uh, got to the point where I had about 50 students and couldn't take on any more. Uh, tried a few times to, you know, get the thing going with some other people, but mm -hmm. uh, reached a point where I was like, all right, I just hired my... Uh, one of my bandmates to come help work with me and it uh, took off. We found a good formula and just started growing from there. And uh, That's awesome. yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, you figure it out over a few years. There's a long time where I was just riding my bike to people's houses, playing music and doing teaching lessons. But uh, did you always kind of have the plan of turning it into a full on business or did you like, did you have that aspiration or was it always kind of just teaching lessons until it became something bigger? My goal from pretty early was to get enough capital with this business that yeah. I could do some other stuff. My passion has always been uh, taking ideas and kind of making them a reality. That's something I mean, I haven't been able to do a ton of outside yeah. of this one, but I've always been like, you know, that'd be fun just to be like, all right, I want to do a food truck and start yeah. that. But totally. I, you need the capital to do that. So yeah. I was like, what's going to be my first thing? And this yeah. was something I knew how to do. I knew there were people that wanted to do it. And I knew there was a lot of people that wanted to offer it that couldn't quite figure out a good plan. They, yeah. met, they you know they were good musicians, uh, music teachers first, but and businessmen second. Yep. And so I'm like, well, I I'm a business guy first, and yeah. musician second, and yeah. music teacher second. So let's see if we can't work together. Yeah. Yeah. That's a it's a killer combo. Yeah. For sure. I've always been saying, you know, I like teaching music, but that's it's running the business is the first thing that I'm doing. Totally. Yeah. That makes sense. So uh, what would you say kind of sets Rogue Music Lessons 
uh, apart from the competition? How what what kind of aspects of the market have you exploited that your competition is failing at? Well, so there's a couple of aspects to that. One, if it comes to direct competition. Um, you know, you got places like Guitar Center that offer lessons. That's our biggest mm -hmm. one locally, um, where for them, it's simple music lessons is something they've added onto their business. Yeah. And for us, it's what we're building our business around. Right. Uh, you know, they're More focused focus. on retail. Yeah, retail is kind of a dying market. Mm -hmm. If that's your core, mm -hmm. uh, you know, everything else is going to revolve around that. For us, we do offer some retail, but it's more the idea that the service industry is something that's definitely up and coming. Yeah. Just person-to-person -person service. Um, and for us, it's very much that uh, we just facilitate that that um, relationship between the person and their instructor. That's yeah. our, our biggest thing is we realize there is a ton of people that wanted to take music lessons mm -hmm. um, and a ton of people that were great musicians and maybe taught some people on their own. Yeah. Um, but there was just no way to connect those people. You had to do a lot of research on your own. There wasn't yeah. some... A f some app or anything you could go to that's yeah. like, oh, here, I'll find my music teachers. Yeah. You know, kind of like the Uber of, uh, yeah. such an overuse <laughs> kind of an older <laughs> term. But, you know, we don't want to be the Uber of music lessons, but that's a, you know, idea is like, okay, how can we connect those two people together? That's our biggest thing is, uh, doing that. We don't try to um, build up and create our own instructors. We find those instructors and we yeah. connect them with the people that, you know, everybody wants their kids to take music lessons. That's cool. Yeah. So, um, how how do you select music teachers and is that part challenging? Oh, <laughs> well, at first it was who is available. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing that I've told my instructors and I've kind of realized over the years, um, it holds true less so in, as we're trying to go into this next stage of, of uh, you know, a bigger, more professional business. We've, we've been in a very guerrilla stage yeah, for the last few years. Totally. Um, but one thing that really held true then and, and will still kind of hold true there in the future is that when you're teaching music lessons or really when you're interacting with people kind of in any service industry, mm. your ability to do that service is very often second um, in uh, to your ability to interact with the customer. So if you're able to you know be friendly with them, engage yep. with them, become their friend, they're going to want to keep that relationship yep. with you. I've totally. seen so many uh, teachers that are just absolutely awful music teachers. Their kids don't progress at all, yeah. but they interact with their parents. They're very friendly and they love the kids, love them, and they want to keep going back to them. And so yeah. um, you know we've told our people. Uh, the biggest thing is that you're able to you know, interact and be friendly with your clients. Yeah. Uh, and so for a long time, that was our biggest thing is finding somebody that, you know, could hit the points, but, you know, they were able to uh, uh, really build a relationship there. Yeah. And make it fun. And make it fun. Yeah. yeah. And often it's uh, like anything, one of my kind of theories, both in business and life is try something and see if it works. Yeah. So we would find somebody, you know, that we know has good credentials yeah. um, and then put them with a few students. If they are able to keep them going, if they like working with them, that's often, you know, say that's what we have. We find the yeah. people then that would want to work with that teacher. Because, um, cool. you know, there's going to be students for every person there that's qualified. For sure. But... <laughs> You do get some stinkers sometimes, and it's it's one thing we've learned is you got to do your due diligence yeah. thoroughly and and figure out the character of the person. So, and what does that look like in your particular case? How, how what is your process? For uh, due diligence? Well, you can call their um, you can call their old employers and that kind yeah. of stuff. But the hard part is people often put. Um, 
they put their preferred references. Of there. course. So we now hire, uh, we very often will hire people from SOU and from colleges. Yep. And one thing I found that's very um, reliable now is to uh, see if you can't find people inside their circle that maybe haven't asked to be a reference. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you've got an instructor or a teacher that's coming over there or somebody that's been in the graduate program, you can very often find somebody that interacted with them and you can say, hey, what's this person like? Yeah. Um, you know, we will work with anybody if they are willing to compromise and work with us. Yeah. It, but if somebody's just just bullheaded and, you know, that kind of stuff, you got you to gotta figure that out. That, yeah. We've been screwed before. <laughs> it's especially hard in our industry because these teachers build a relationship with their clients. Yeah. And so when somebody leaves you, uh, and it would be true with really any, again, any other service industry, when they leave you, you the clients often go with them. Yeah. So it's, it's very difficult to kind of build that, uh, you know, find a person who you can build that relationship with the people without completely having it attached to the person, but also attach it to you guys. But if you get a stinker, they it hurts. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it, it, it looks bad on your company's mm -hmm. reputation. Probably. Right. Um, so how, how do you kind of attempt to at least separate those two things in, in the sense of, um, of, making the relationship more with the company than with the person so that if they are a stinker right. or they do quit or whatever right. the situation is, um, you they stay with you rather than I think there them. are two. Now, this this does get into an uh, area where we're moving into. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, very much uh, in the past, it's been um, hands-off with instructors. Yeah. Check in with them to make sure they know their stuff, but hands-off. But as we're moving into this now, I feel like there's kind of two options that present themselves. One is you can uh, just get the instructors to, uh, you know, vomit up your curriculum and your your stuff yeah. with the people, your brand. And, you know, that'll work. You'll get them really attached to you, but then they're not attached to the teacher. Yeah. And I feel like that is almost more counterproductive. Yeah. The biggest totally. thing you'd want to do is get the teacher engaged in your brand and then get them engaged along with the student engaged along with them. We are now trying to foster kind of that business culture, yeah. you know, where you're, you're like, I'm, I, I'm a part of this business. I'm yeah. not a, excuse me, I'm not just a, uh, you know, I'm not Sam that teaches at Rogue Music Lessons. Like this is my, this is my part of my uh, yeah. personality. So totally. they, they love working here. They really believe in the, uh, now that's a lot more difficult because yeah. you have to, uh, you need to be, you know, like a mentor to these teachers. You yeah. have to get a uh, great environment for them and really totally. give them a place where they feel like they can do, this is not a stepping stone for them. They can get more working for you than yeah. they could by themselves. And, and that actually makes a lot of sense too, because it also benefits the client mm -hmm. if they have more options in the teaching style right. of the different teachers right. in, in Rogue Music Lesson rather than some universal curricula that and that's something follow. that has been really good for us is that you know it's very rare that a student starts their journey uh at you know five years old with one teacher and mm -hmm. continues with that instructor all the way through totally. um you're gonna transition instructors and that's always a very traumatic thing for students so coming with a studio like us one of the benefits is that for the most part if you're going to transition from one teacher to another outside of you know, somebody just bailing on the studio. Mm -hmm. There's going to be communication between the teachers. There's yeah. going to be the notes passed between others. We have a, a branded and a standardized curriculum that we're using now. So they're going to be able to uh, pick up where the other instructor left off, that kind that's of cool. stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really important. It's, it's, it's very hard 
uh, in a service industry to get that brand loyalty to yourself. Yeah. Um, without sacrificing the uniqueness um, and the kind of the one-on-one aspect that you get from a independent instructor. Yeah. So you got to totally. kind of figure that part out. And there will always be some of our instructors that are kind of independent, but those ones, we just have to pay them well enough that they really preach our message. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, where where do you usually find most of your instructors or do they find you? Well, we have a couple of options. Best way to find other instructors is through referrals um, yeah. from you know either current instructors um, current people, you talk to people, you know, mm-hmm. call people in the Valley that, uh, you know, are qualified and, and have a kind of the thinker on the pulse of the music industry. Yeah. Um, it's really nice being close to SOU. Yeah. Um, we got a couple people from SOU and that has grown to the point where probably at least a quarter of our staff ha- either comes from SOU or is employed at SOU. That makes sense. Um, and then, uh, Final place we'll get people, I mean, besides just kind of advertising, finding people, we'll also, uh, I've hired old students of mine, um, typically people, <clears throat> excuse me, that were personal students of myself oh, that's cool. and took lessons of me between six to 10 years. Um, when I started teaching, I I was pretty elementary in my understanding of music. Yeah. Um, but that gives you a little bit of an edge with beginning students because you're so close to where they are. Yeah. You get a little bit. You can think the same way that they are. There's an idea um, really well um, described um, in the the movies awful, but the book is great. The never ending story. Oh yeah. Yeah. He has this idea that he presents where when you learn something new, you pay for that knowledge with the memory of what it was like to not know that thing. Yeah, and that it seems inconsequential, but it's very important. So, like when you uh, when you get something a skill to the point where it's second nature, mm. it. I mean, you can understand on some level what it's not like to not know how to do that thing, but it's like somebody is telling you, like, well, you know, you know, you have to breathe, just kind of suck in and suck out. It's just like it's so hard to describe something that is innate to you. So when you te- get those teachers that have gone through the whole master's program or the, you know, even worse, their doctorates, uh, then it's the point where describing how to do a simple scale for them, they yeah. just it's so hard for them to put in basic terms. I so can relate to that. Yeah. Because it's the same way whenever I'm teaching mm-hmm. anything coding related, it's like, I I remember when I was right. in that stage, but right. teaching at that stage is so hard oh, when you're so difficult. 15 years abstracted yeah. from it. It's crazy. Yeah. So yeah, do you, do you then try to get um, kind of a range of sort of uh, um, kind of competency levels for well, that reason? One thing we're working on right now, and I'm really excited about is, um, uh, my partner I've taken on recently um, has a really good relationship with SOU uh, again, and he has um, gotten their uh, doctor to piano, so, uh, Dr. Alex Tutnov, mm-hmm. who's their kind of premier guy over there, um, to join our team. And Ooh. he is coming on. Uh, and so that gives us kind of that highest level we haven't had. Totally. We've always had teachers that are, you know, they got their master's, um, and you've got people like myself and then a couple other churches have been doing this for going on 10 years now. Um, but excuse me, um, in that same idea that, that, you know, you want somebody that's instructing you 
to be able to understand what you're doing. Totally. But you also want them taking you in the right direction. Yep. Um, so uh, a great thing uh, that we are setting up is our most advanced instructors will actually teach our lower instructors. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, as part of uh, being an instructor, if you haven't already gone through some sort of master's program or yeah. something like that, uh, you'll take regular lessons with Dr. Tutanov okay. or with who his equivalent on guitar or vocals. Um, and that. so the idea is that you're still understanding this stuff and you can still understand how to teach somebody, yeah. but you can take them in the right direction. And then once that instructor themselves gets more advanced, they move up to the next tier. So there theoretically could be a, a pipeline that starts as a student to a student instructor to yeah. all the way up to that doctorate program. Right. And the entire time you're discipled underneath. So that's a whole nother level to our business that I'm really excited about, yeah. which is our uh, kind of our discipleship program, which is I think Love is that. stolen from like the, the church uh, idea, but it's very apt. Yeah. Um, or you call it an apprenticeship program. Yeah. Um, so so somebody could be come in and they're getting pretty good. So we set them up with a local musician or if they're coming up as an instructor here, we say, OK, we're you know, you've been taking lessons for six to 10 years. We're going to get you a couple of young students to start off with or totally. beginner students. And if you like that, hey, we'll guarantee you a job here starting off with this or one of the yeah. other branches. And then you can get trained all the way up through your you know, you're working with people who've gone through the collegiate system and gotten their doctorate. So you can have that advice the whole way. That is really cool. Yeah. I like that a lot. I mean, you do that a few times. You, It's it's going to look really good telling people like, yeah, a couple of our students have, uh, they started here, yeah. you know, paying for lessons, but eventually we hired them up here. Now they're teaching. I got one guy that's a kid that's teaching music in Kentucky now. It was a private so cool. student of mine and a couple other teachers that have gone through that. Yeah. But yeah, it's, a, it's a, you know, we want to be able to offer something to people where it's like, you know, music... It is a little bit like sports where if you only are looking at performance, yeah. only the top 1%, if that make it. Yeah. But there's so much to diversify into with music totally. that it's like, yeah, we'll help you do something like that. Yeah. And it doesn't even matter if, I mean, to some degree, it depends on the person's desire, obviously. But right. it sort of doesn't matter if you're, you know, a concert pianist level player. No. Like, to I feel am enriched. not that. I yeah. am not like, I... I can play piano pretty well, but I could not do a concert. Yeah. And I've never seen myself as a performance piano, but pianist. But I, I mean, this business yeah. makes a pretty decent amount of it. Even teaching by yourself, if you're, uh, you don't even have to have a master's. Yeah. Um, I mean, I hope now a lot of my teachers themselves don't hear this, <laughs> but at the same time, <laughs> it does take a level of business insight yeah. to where you have to be able to uh, do the advertising, do all of that. Oh, but without a doubt. Done right, you could make fifty to a hundred dollars an hour yeah. working out of your home. Yeah. You know, even a small town like Medford, and it's so it's it it's there's always an option for teaching. Totally. And and my dad always used to tell me, and it's held true that the worst times get them where people throw into like learning music and that yeah. kind of stuff. So it is kind of a recession proof business. And that's you know? that's huge, especially right. since we're kind of going into a recession exactly. right now. <laughs> you know, I'm a, it's like for me, if this collapses, I know I always have that to fall back yeah, on. Totally. And so I mean, and it's. I, technically, I think I'd make more teaching on my own right now than I would running the business, but there's more profit to be had. Yeah, absolutely. So. And and I think there's something to be said for the excitement right. of the potential of a business. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun thing going yeah. to that next stage and finding investors and doing all that. So what would you say uh, was the biggest place you learned your business skills? Like, was it on the job? Was it in some sort of school or like, how did that come to be? I've always been somebody who learns kind of by doing. Yeah. Um, and it, it, you know, it's very similar to the way that I learned to play piano. Uh, it's 
maybe not the best approach. It's kind of a bullheaded approach where you just kind of throw yourself at the problem yeah. and then make a mistake and then adjust from that mistake. Um, so as far as with business, it's been, uh, you know, throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. Um, when I, uh, I got a really good opportunity, um, fairly on to, uh, have a studio myself by cool. my, of my own inside a studio that I was, uh, piano studio. I was working at just doing some like retail and web design stuff. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, you can use your office to teach it. And so I, that allowed me to build myself up to about 50 students. And then he gave me a really good price to be able to rent uh, a room. And I was able to try out bringing some other people on and seeing how that works. Yeah. Um, and I'm really glad I was, I mean, I'm lucky to be able to do that in a very low overhead environment yeah. for sure. Like I don't, I, if I had to experiment with those things, on my own, I would have had to save up, you know, 10 grand and then do yeah. it. So I probably wouldn't have been able to do the same thing. I definitely had uh, a couple of legs up in yeah. that case. But, um, you know, that gave me an environment where I could really try some different things. You know, cool. I tried bringing people on um, and uh, experimenting with different formulas and seeing, okay, how can we bring people in? How can we keep them sticking around? Yeah. First few times, lost thousands uh but uh finally uh you know after you try something enough times and it's like you well, i was too far left let's aim yeah. a little further right that yeah i mean you're essentially you have some theory in your head of what might work right and then you're testing against reality exactly which it's, it's makes all sorts it's of sense. just the scientific method yeah. applied to business yeah basically. And, you know, and hypothesis and test adjust totally <laughs> and and i actually hear uh that in silicon valley that is considered like it's considered considered kind of a badge of right. honor to have failing or failed businesses right. in the past because it means that you hopefully right. learn from your mistakes. Exactly, and you're probably a better business oh, or yeah. entrepreneur. Oh yeah, you yeah. learn uh, I, because it's it's such a nothing is a do this or don't do that yeah. in in life. And uh, Lucas would always tease me about making metaphors with whatever my current obsession outside of work was, <laughs> but it would especially like say golf that yeah. I'm working on recently. It's not like you have to do this, you know, hit the ball lower, hit the ball. Lower. It's uh, it's dials. Yeah. And it's, it's it's so easy to be. Well, it's a little bit more pressure, a yeah. little bit less pressure when it comes to employees. Am I going to be hands on or hands off? No, it's, yeah. it's how much of each am I going to yeah. be finding those levels? Yeah. And you never know which dial is off a little bit. And so, yeah, yeah you have to have a, an area where you can really try out a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. um, if I was telling somebody to do it on their own, I would say, you know, it's, you have to find a, a place where you could do your tests with no overhead yeah. until you find something that you think, okay, more more often than not, this will be profitable. Yeah. Because you can never be guaranteed. Let's try sure. this. Now we can throw a little bit of money into it. And yep. that's, it's difficult. Not everybody has that opportunity. Yeah. But uh, if you can, it makes it a lot easier to bootstrap yourself up a little bit. And a little less stressful too. A little less stressful, exactly. Yeah. 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 So that safety net's definitely pretty nice, but what what would you say were some of like the biggest lessons you learned along the way? Oh, uh, um, it's a little bit of a vague question. A little but, bit of a vague. Well, no, yeah. that's all right. Well, um, uh, when it comes to uh, well, let's see. Ah, uh, that one's. Let's circle back to that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sometimes I, you know, it's hard to learn a lesson. Sometimes, yeah. you no, know? it's true. Oh uh, well, a couple of things. One is. Um, 
when it comes to the small things mm. like, okay, clean your studio, yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, process, uh, you know, customer service stuff, low level customer service sure. stuff. It's very easy to focus only on what's the most important thing today. What's the yeah. thing that's going to kill me today. Yeah. But if you're only ever focusing on that, mm. then eventually the other stuff builds up. Mm -hmm. So sometimes as counterintuitive as it sounds, it's worth placing the the thing that just is on the front of your mind to the side and getting your house in order. Yeah. Uh, that's something I've been working on a lot recently. Yeah. Um, giving yourself the flexibility and the freedom to be able to expand a little bit. And so you're not always just as stressed out knowing I've got a million things on my list and then there's the one thing. If you can, yeah. those million things, most of them, 99% of them are gonna be quick little things you can check off. Yeah. You do that, you're gonna have all of your attention to focus on that one thing. That's at least recently some, a lesson I've been learning yeah. a lot. I like that. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, ooh, what are some books or people that have inspired you? Oh, Adrian's always trying to get me to read. Uh, um, oh, no, I can't. <laughs> uh, uh, no, now, I, now I'm going to blank on them. Oh, that's um, all good. I, Books, I'm not a, I, as much as I read growing up, mm. I haven't been as big of a book person. There was one, The Power of Habit. Mm, Did you ever yep. read that? No, I haven't. That's one that's really stuck in my craw a lot. Mm -hmm. It's got a lot of stuff that uh, applies to music lessons. The idea is basically uh, if you want people to do something, you have to establish a habit and a routine around yeah, that, totally. uh, a trigger that makes them think. Uh, yeah. And that's something for myself too. It's been like, okay, yeah, if, if, I, if I want to... Uh, accomplish something. Yeah. I can't just say, I want to do this. It has no. to be, okay, what is the reason I'm getting that? Or yeah. what is the thing that prompts me? Uh, let's say, for instance, you're always uh, staying up late. Yeah. Right? You're not going to bed too early. Then, okay, well, why? It's not that I want to force myself to go to bed earlier because sure. that's just going to, uh, there's some issue. You know, this That's just a symptom. So yeah. what is it? Is it I'm not getting enough stimulation earlier in the day? Yeah. I'm not drinking coffee, something like that. Address the root cause there that's, like a, that. that's something that's been yeah that's fun. big yeah for sure and and i can personally attest to the power of habit because yeah. you can you can spend uh you know four hours a day and do something for you know a month and have the same impact of doing something 10 minutes a right. day for a year so just doing something even in tiny chunks right. for a huge period of time yeah seems to have a, a huge impact he on also life. had something in the book that I've really, it always keeps popping back into my head. Um, it's, he talked about how people made Febreze originally. Mm -hmm. Febreze is not just an air freshener. Mm -hmm. It's actually, a, originally didn't have any sense in it at all. It's a chemical that actually locks up the sense and mm. prevents you from smelling the odors in the air. Oh, that's funny. And so when Febreze originally tried to market it, they, uh, for instance, they gave it to a lady, uh, they gave it to like a bunch of housewives um, and they uh, gave them these sample bottles yeah. and they never bought any more. And they reached out to them. They said, oh no, yeah, that's great. I forgot about that. It, mm -hmm. it worked phenomenal. I put it my drawer and I haven't used it since. Yeah. And they uh, eventually through some testing, they realized that what people were doing was they were eliminating, eliminating the bad thing, mm -hmm. but not getting any sort of reward or positive feedback for that. Yeah. And so they would, yeah, they'd eliminate the problem right then and they would forget about the thing. Totally. So uh, they started adding the scent, some sort of like, oh, now it smells fresh. 
And then it started selling. And then they eventually, they don't even hit, it's just an air freshener. Because they just, they don't even notice that it's there if it just removes the scent. If you're do, oftentimes, you know, we eliminate something that's negative. Yeah. But we don't give ourselves some sort of positive for that. So like if you're like, let's say, for instance, you're trying to get off drinking too much. Yeah. You just say, well, I'm just going to stop. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, you got to do something like, okay, take up something you enjoy to fill that space. That's going to give you something you couldn't do otherwise. Yeah. It's going to give you that positive result. Yeah, I can personally attest to that. When I quit smoking, mm-hmm. I um, started drinking coffee. Right. Or And I also started exercising a lot more. Yeah. And those two things were like kind oh, of no. the... Exercise, the if you ultimate. can do it, is a good one. It's yeah. just hard to get that ball rolling. It's hard. But once you get it, once you get like a month in, it oh, yeah. feels so great. There's oh. nothing else like it. Really. I remember rock climbing and after getting past that point where I was just like, I just felt so good all the time. Yeah. yeah. And now it's just like, oh, it's hard to climb a couple flights of stairs. <laughs> <laughs> I can so relate. Yeah. Uh, Man, it's rough. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm glad we've been getting out on the course a little more recently because yeah. like, okay, I'm actually getting some miles. Yeah. And it's good. Yeah, no, it, there's a... Uh, it's necessary. Yeah. It's, it's also, especially, um, I think being outside is a huge aspect of right. that too. Like being in a gym environment. Right. Sorry, it's just not the same. Yeah, it's not for me. I can't go in and just lift weights. I have to have something no. I'm doing. I just, I'm the same thing for me. Like I, I watch a lot of YouTube, uh, like instructional how-to videos yeah. or a lot of like deep dive uh, yeah. documentaries and stuff, but I could never just sit down and watch one. It's I, like background I kind of stuff. can, but I yeah, I have a certain limit. I, right. I'm I'm about a one and a half hour person yeah. max, and then I'm like yep. too bored, too right. ADD. I can't yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 good for me because I can like I can work on my thing, and then I'll something I'll hear something. I'll listen to that for a little bit. Yeah. But you you learn a lot by osmosis, but it yeah. also just fills the background a little yeah. bit. But <laughs> and I also think like. After you get past, uh, your your brain has only a certain amount of time that you can stay really focused. Right. So after a certain point, like you try remembering yeah. any of the details of that video or right. whatever, uh, not, even a day later, right. it's not gonna happen. It's very similar to like, I remember when I was a kid, I would l- sit down and read comic uh, like uh, anthologies. Yeah. Uh, say like Calvin and Hobbes mm-hmm. and I'd read the whole thing all the way through and the first few pages I'd be laughing so hard I was <laughs> crying and after like a four or five you're just yeah. yeah it's still it's the same material it's just yeah. as funny but your brain yeah it's it's a you need a new stimulation a hundred percent and that's actually the funny thing with comedy is it is like uh, a novelty thing right if you watch the same comedy routine that cracked you up right. three years ago Almost guaranteed you're not oh, going to yeah. even laugh at it. You got to give it long enough that you've forgotten most of yeah. it. And then you yeah. kind of like sense what's coming a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> that's fun. That is fun. Yeah, uh, I, I'm i probably not very good at giving it enough time sometimes. Right. <laughs> or I have too good of a memory. One of the oh, two. that's why I'm looking forward to going back to just a little bit of Louis C.K. It's been a long time. He's, he's been kind of anathema for a little yeah. while. But now that he's yeah. kind of back, I'll, I'll go listen to his stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd listen to it anytime anyway. <laughs> um... Uh, what do you find still interesting about uh, music to this day, like in terms of theory and all of that? What, what is like, um, I don't know, something that's, yeah, that kind of excites you? Well, uh, if we're looking like pure music, mm-hmm. that's something that constantly you're yeah. finding new things. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's, it sounds kind of like... <laughs> pretentious but it does it is does hold true recently um i've been starting to uh kind of answer the question of why are there so many you look at a really good piece Mm. and if you know uh you know a little bit about music you got your 
natural notes mm -hmm. and you got your accidentals, right? Yep. So you play something like Mary Had a Little Lamb or any pop song. It's all, every note on the page is what it would be in that song or in that key. Yeah. Then you go to a piece like Chopin, he's got sharps and flats and naturals or no yeah. whatever. Trying to figure out what's going on there, that's been a lot of fun. So does that follow uh kind of typical uh, music theory in terms of like harmonics and all oh, that. Oh yeah, it's yeah. it's um, it's just kind of a next level of it. It's, yeah. uh, it takes, it's very much like just having uh, rice and chicken and having, uh, you know, like a big Indian dish with all the spices. Yeah. Um, it, it's the same rules. Um, they, <sighs> It, it's it's interesting because you take somebody who doesn't know anything about music and yeah. you have them pick a couple of chords or notes on the piano and it'll sound awful. Mm. But you give somebody who knows music theory yeah. and they could play those exact same notes, maybe some other stuff written in there. Yeah. But all of a sudden now, because they did it with purpose, it's going to make sense and it's going to sound beautiful. It's and just the ordering. It's the ordering. And yeah, the timing. There's, there's, well, there's in music, there's... If you were stripping it down to two basic fundamentals in music, yeah. it's tension and release. Okay, yeah. So yeah. you start off with just a basic uh, note that has just that defines the key, yeah. and it's very stable. And you can move from that to a note that has a lot of tension. Yeah. And then that will always want to get back. For instance, you got like Mary had a little lamb is nice and harmonic. Yeah. And then the, da 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 introduces more tension, and it wants to get back up to the da da. Yeah. So that's very basic. It has just a little bit of tension where you you're creating. What's really interesting is you're what you're really doing is creating harm, um, harmonies that have, for instance, you have uh, a, a one note might be a. Um, it might be two tones that have a relationship of one to two. For instance, one of every for every one hertz of one, you have two hertz of another. Okay, right? Yeah. And that's going to sound pleasant. That's going to yeah. be just a nice harmonious interval. But then you might have one that has like five to eleven, and that's going to create a lot of dissonance. Yeah. And in music, the one interesting thing is the closer you get to one to one. Mm -hmm the more dissonant it is up to the it's it's almost like this valley where it's worse and worse and worse and then it snaps into place meaning right if you play like the chromatic scale right the chromatic scale right dissonant. if you're playing if you if you the worst note you can play in a scale is the one that's closest to home base okay not yeah. inside the key Interesting. and so you what you're when you're doing with advanced music theory is often you're playing those notes that are unexpected or mm -hmm. unallowed mm -hmm. purposely for their proximity notes that are allowed. Oh, that's cool. And so it, it sets your ear up. Yeah. Or you borrow something, for instance, in uh, music theory, the uh, your, your chords based off different notes of the scale. Mm. The chord based off the fifth note of the scale is the most aggressive in wanting to get back to the root. Okay. So you can play, you can borrow Let's uh, that uh, because you have lots of different keys. Every every chord in any key has its own key associated with it. Right. You can borrow, let's say you're in the key of C and you want to go to a G chord. Mm -hmm. You can borrow that five chord from the key of G Okay. Yeah. and then play it in the key of C and it's going to go, oh, wow, it's going to want to push you to the G, which then is in the key of C. Oh, you that's borrow so cool. something that's just a little bit outside, yeah. but then you can also use that because our ears are so tuned to expect different things that mm -hmm. even if you don't know music theory, you know it like a language. Yeah. 
that you can play something uh, and then it's almost like a like a um, like a word parody mm -hmm. where you say something that sets it up to where you expect somebody's going to say this, mm -hmm. but then they say this instead. But it actually yeah. makes sense yeah. that you just weren't ex because most of the time. So it's almost like a musical joke in that sense. Would you say jazz kind of is just like the the ultimate uh uh, jazz expansive thinks that, it's the ultimate. Okay, <laughs> and that, there is that jazz is very creative. Yeah, um, they they do utilize the most of jazz is based off of one uh, movement called the two five one. Most jazz that you know we think of, but jazz often gets into really heady stuff. Mm -hmm. But the deeper you get into it, the more you realize that Chopin was doing the same stuff. That's funny. It's very interesting. This, the timing is super different. The timing is different. It's more flowy often, but then you get into songs like, have you ever seen The Pianist? Mm -hmm. uh, the ballad in G minor that he yeah. plays for the Russian guy I in there. That. Oh, it's fantastic. Full. I mean, you could compare that to a George Gershwin piece. Yeah, like yeah. it's very similar. Yeah. Um, there, uh, jazz is very chromatic often. Yeah. And jazz does get into the area of experimental that's what often people think of jazz yeah. it's like classical experimental experimenting within musical rules yeah and and some jazz sucks yeah. for that reason oh, yeah uh, but, i but am some not is a really fan fantastic. of coltrane most yeah. stuff i love my favorite things sometimes i'm just like all right that's enough <laughs> miles davis i can appreciate i do like miles uh, davis a lot yeah, often jazz what I about Thelonious Monk. Thelonious Monk, I He's do fun. like a lot of his stuff the guy yeah. was absolutely bonkers <laughs> um he <laughs> Thelonious Monk, I, I might be mistaking which uh, famous jazz guy it was, but Thelonious Monk, uh, I believe it was, had a, one of his albums as a picture of his basement. In mm. the corner, sailing there, is a Nazi officer in full regalia. Oh my gosh. And people Yikes. were like, what's up about that? Yeah. And if you look into it, uh, no, he was actually, uh, it was a stuffed a guy from World War II, fully stuffed. And if I'm not mistaken, I, it was either him or it was like his grandpa. It was like handed down to him. Or but it was like, it was like a full stand. It was like, That's no, it's gnarly. okay. Yeah, he's a, he's a lunatic. Yeah. But he would do this thing where he would solo and he would he's known for just being the king of, of dissonance mm. or notes that are out of time. Yeah. But the crazy thing with it is he'd be singing along with himself. So he'd be crying these crazy notes, but he, would, he was hearing in his head yeah. what he would play. You get people that will solo. Uh, there's two types. There's those who know the rules, and if you know the rules and you know which notes are allowed to play, sure. you just jump back and forth between those notes. That's eh, a little, that's cool. Yeah. But then you get somebody like Thelonious Monk who he hears his solo in his head before it comes out. That's wild. And he's so he can harmonize or whatever he oh, wants yeah. with it. And that's he's doing crazy. that all along with it. He's yeah. I, some of the stuff I really like. Some of it gets out there. Who would you say is the most? I don't know. Impressive. Uh, inspiring musician uh, that, uh, in your opinion, obviously. Uh, well, the one I've been impressed by the most, yeah, or at least lately. pianist. Uh, yeah, uh, he's not as well known, but he's he's pretty decent. Is mm. Eldar Jengarov? Mm. He's a Russian pianist, uh, young guy in his like twenties and thirties was playing stuff that just blows your mind. And it was really? it was jazzy and chromatic, but it's the kind of stuff where. What what you get with John Coltrane and what I, I do appreciate for him is mm. he's experimenting. Mm -hmm. And that stuff is almost not intended for the average listener to listen to. The idea it's like 
advanced physics theories. You're not gonna listen to those in a YouTube video and, yeah. and be able to be entertained by it, but that gets watered down to a point where it's uh, approachable by the masses totally. or like a really uh, experimental dish or yeah. uh, or like haute couture fashion, I don't know I'm pronouncing that wrong, the ones you see with the crazy stuff. Yeah. Nobody wears that, yeah. <laughs> but that's inspiration then. Yeah. They say, oh, here's what you can, oh, I didn't know you could even do that. It's kind of those, uh, like those um, car drawings that yes, never make exactly. it to market. The, same the, sort of thing. The fantasy, or the, uh, yeah, exactly. The yeah. concept card. Drawing. Yeah, concept cards. But the what happens then is you then take that, which is mm -hmm. done with no rules, and mm -hmm. you say, okay, now do that within these rules. You can break yeah. some of them, yeah. but do that within, you're now restricted. Yeah. And that's where you get the real good stuff. Yeah, that makes it, sense. I mean, I like, the, I, I like the experimentation for that, but it's it's like you wouldn't put, the, you wouldn't, you wouldn't put the newest microwave that they still were putting in the technology that they're not sure if it's gonna explode yeah. in your kitchen, yeah, but it's yeah. it's great to go to the show and yeah, see that, that's yeah. cool. And then because of that, you're gonna get something that's like really powerful at your totally. house. But it's it's that same idea like with prog music, like mm. Adrian loves listening to prog music. Oh, I've, I've heard it. Oh, uh, and I'm just like, ah. Uh, but then you get something with Radiohead where they restrict themselves to, and I can't think of a good example right now, but, uh, or you get, for instance, John Mayer, he, it's a John Mayer does Kid A. It's like for me, it's 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 very much. He's got a lot of the same cool little movements stuff, but yeah. it's done acoustically. And it's like, like oh, I love that. It's yeah. a lot more creative than his usual. Yeah, stuff. no, it's true. And and what's funny about that too is that um, I took one art class in my entire life uh, right. with. Uh, do you know Gabriel um, in Ashland? He's amazing. He he taught my dad and right. um, my sister and a couple other people I know. Um, and. What he does with um, actual oil painting is very much the same thing. He'll literally limit his palette with a certain set of colors that does not allow you to obviously make the full spectrum right. of colors. So you end up with probably, uh, in my opinion, way cooler paintings oh, yeah. because they're just so, they're restricted, but it makes that piece that much more vibrant and amazing and it catches your eye because it's it's, those rules are, are really necessary. It's similar to the necessity is the mother of invention. There's something, yeah. a similar concept, I, I I know I've heard a phrase for it before, but it's the same idea that that restrictions breed creativity. Yeah. It's if you're, you have all this create, uh, unrestricted, just unbounded creativity that yeah. comes out, but then you go, okay, now you have to be just as creative within this framework. Totally. It's still just as creative, yeah. but now approachable too. And it's, it's, I, the other way to look at it too is the um, blank page, if you're a writer, right. is terrifying. Yeah. What do you put on it? <laughs> if you put some constraints, right. it's so much easier. It's like the in music they have uh, a lot of the pieces that you like by Mozart and Bach and those cl really classical pieces, mm -hmm. they follow forms. Mm -hmm. And the older you go in music theory, and I think we kind of need a renaissance of this because we're getting a little bit out there uh, starting with yeah list and and debussy a little bit we mm. started to get into the modern era and uh it gets a little bit meh, sometimes yeah uh, you get into people like philip glass which i don't know if you've listened to some of his uh, stuff, for sure right yeah uh, now he's different minimal he, stuff i like some of his stuff right but 
Some of his like more synthy stuff yeah, is like, exactly. oh my God, this is weird. So at the beginning, you had these really strict rules yeah. about this chord, it had to follow this chord. Yeah. And if you were gonna, but what they would do, people think that's so limiting. No, what they would do is then all you're focused on at that point is the theme. Yeah. And you are don't have to worry about all your creative energy is only in this. So yeah. if you're saying, I'm just, I'm not gonna use, I'm gonna use these four colors. That's zero creativity put to choosing colors. That's yeah. purely in what do I want? How do I want these colors to generate? You can't fill the gap with, oh, I'm gonna substitute this. No, you have to make this yeah, work. Totally. So when it comes to then, as people started to break those rules, you get a lot out of that. And it's still, you get like Chopin, it's, it's breaking the rules, but still, oh, it's more of a reinterpretation. Yeah. And now in modern music, they often, it's just, it's kind of throwing them out. <laughs> well, and, and I think because modern music follows the ideology right. of postmodernism. It's postmodernism, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's the whole theory of postmodernism. But what postmodernism is is really doing, I think, is if it's acting correctly, yeah. is setting the stage for something else. And that next thing will take only the best. They'll re-explore Bach and Mozart yeah. and take only the best from there. Right. And there's some things that, I mean, in music, it's very interesting because we developed all these music rules mm -hmm. uh, before we had modern technology. Do you do you buy the rules? Do you think the that rules are great? There yeah. are some rules that are like uh, you should never have one old one with classical music is uh, you should never have a melody whose harmony is always five notes below it. You okay. should never have what they call perfect fifths or fifths moving, I'm moving in fifths. Okay. And that's totally throughout the window. Um, yeah. Power chords are yeah. all fifths. That's yeah, the whole and, thing. and that's like all rock. It's a whole rock job. <laughs> yeah, there yeah. are some rules that are dumb. Now, there are some rules that are not theories as much as explanations of physical things. Okay. Like there are some truisms to music that for, when it getting back to those harmonics that a dissonant harmony mm -hmm. wants to resolve to the closest stable harmony. That's yeah. the fundamental thing with music. And a lot of their rules in the beginning were set around trying to figure that out. Mm -hmm. They develop things like the scale and all these things. But the crazy thing is when you go into with modern technology, the uh, the study of the actual waveforms mm -hmm. and why notes are the way they are, yeah. um, how any uh, uh, note itself actually contains every other note on the piano yeah. in varying degrees. That's super And cool. the reason that we like a chord made out of the first, third, and fifth notes of the scale is because those are the first and second harmonics, meaning they're the sec first and second most loud notes when you play that note. Right. It's every note on the piano plays just a little bit to make that note, which is why, That's by the way, cool. at a real acoustic piano is that level above an electric one. Yeah. Because all the strings, especially if the pedals press, resonate together. So how does that work with um, how they, I forget what the term is, but the, the fact that they split the, um, the notes into the equal tonal system, um, because they're not perfectly. They're not perfect. They, yeah. it's, it is very interesting um, because yes, you can tune a piano. So, well, they used to, there's two ways you can tune a piano. Yeah. They used to tune it in, uh, I want to say it's Pythagorean temperament. I, I might be, I know that now it's just temperament. Yeah. Um, but the way they did it before was the key of C, the uh -huh. white notes. Yeah. Perfectly in tune. Oh. And then the black, it, well, well, the, as close as you could be, yeah. very close. The key yeah. is every C on the piano was perfectly in tune with each other. Right. The G was its the which is the most second most important note in the key of C. The white note scale was perfectly in tune there, and those were perfect. But then when you got to the black notes, you couldn't continue that. Gotcha. So they were all a little bit off. And what happened was 
um, as you would leave the key of C, because you can play in multiple keys, yeah. um, as you would get further and further away from the key of C, uh, it would become more and more out of tune. Interesting. To the point where, and it was through the circle of fifths, if yeah. you know anything about music, it wasn't yeah. the CD of G, it was by the, as you went through the circle of fifths. So the furthest distance you could get away from C was the, um, I'm sorry, it was the circle of fourths was the follow it. The mm. furthest you could get away from this key is C. Oh, I'm sorry, it's both of them. The okay. furthest you can get away from the key of C is the G flat. In okay. those, either ways, it's right in the middle of both of those. Right. And by the time you got to G flat, it was so out of tune that to be called unusable. Wild. And what's interesting is most of the songs, the classical songs you think of, were yeah. written in that time period. And what they would do is they would kind of use that each key had its own different feel. Yeah. So you had different intervals that weren't possible okay. in the key of C. So they would write songs. When you see a song in the key of G, the prelude in G or the prelude in C, yeah. that's the reason why all box stuff was in C and G because they were perfectly in tune. You see something in the key of E flat, they were playing that in that key for the style of that key. That's And we don't have that anymore. So yeah, so the, they would have probably written potentially very different music if they if they had the same system we have. Yeah, they would no. have. Uh, you could see it towards the modern era as you get into Chopin and Debussy to, as they started tuning pianos like that. Yeah. They started playing songs not for their perfect temperament because while the key of C is great, mm -hmm. it's right in the middle of the piano. Okay. So is the key of G. And that does allow you to play melodies, especially as you get up. It's in a kind of an awkward spot. Mm -hmm. Technically, I guess all keys are kind of in the middle, but it, it's in a way that if you play a melody, it ends up kind of a little bit awkwardly low or a little bit awkwardly high. If yeah. you want to play the really grandiose melodies. Yeah. Um, as they got into being able to use the keys of G flat and C sharp minor and those keys there, uh, not only were they able to play in different sections, basically different sections of the keyboard, they could also play utilizing the black notes, which yeah. makes playing complex lines so much counterintuitively easier. Interesting. Because you have that, you can play different, uh, you can fit your fingers in a little bit better. It allows turnarounds and movements and all sorts of things that you couldn't do as easily with only white notes. Plus it's a lot easier to not get lost. Key of C, it's just a sea of white notes. That's so interesting. Yeah. So how does that kind of match up with um, Eastern music where they, they don't really feel, they don't have the same sort it's of equal tonal stuff? Now, what's interesting is that a lot of our music theory is, or a lot of the reasons we like the music we like, yeah, is cultural, yeah, yeah, and not even known. It's almost like our brains are pre-wired to speak a certain musical language, yeah. Now that being said, there are unlike a language where there's no fundamental thing breaking, and they can talk about like there's vowels. Every language has vowels and consonants. Yep. I guess they could get down to that. Yeah. Um, that's every musical style, including the Eastern ones, use the same idea of tension and release. They, by going to the microtonal and the quarter tones, uh, you have different things that you can do, uh, but it's still fundamentally the same idea of producing that tension and release and tension. I, do they do they follow some sort of music they theory? They have their own whole own music theory. Really? It's a whole set and there are translation guides between them. That's which so really cool. there are people that are especially recently are working on translating so that, um, Eastern that, that could be the next level. That could be I, the next renaissance. Uh, the first one coming across is the Indian. Mm -hmm. That's the one that I've seen the most development in. Mm. The one that's still awkward is Chinese because mm -hmm. Chinese have their whole own style as really? well. They're very recently influenced by Western, but they have a traditional music style. Yeah. Um, 
Like with the Urhu. Exactly. Yeah. I, I'm jaded. Possibly, I fully admit I'm jaded being raised in the Eastern style, yeah. or the Western style, excuse me. And it's very possible because the Western style has had so much study. We've had, we had plenty of time with uh, a... Um, uh, arist aristocratic class, yeah. uh, aristocratic class that had money and time to, and, and a desire to study music yeah. to the point where everybody learned music it's, in that it's era been academically studied exactly. Yeah. So that developed it a lot. Right. So it could be that Eastern styles need to be developed, uh, but there is something for the Western style of music and the scales they developed yep. that are mathematically beautiful. Yeah, uh, totally. it's. It's it's pretty intense when you get into the actual math going on behind it. It it I just actually wrote something about this. Right. It follows the um, Fibonacci sequence. It does. It which follows is the Fibonacci. Really sequence. weird. And it it follows all sorts of things like the um, uh, real basically you've got in a scale you've got from C to C you've got twelve notes, mm -hmm. seven white notes, which mm -hmm. if you picture in the key of C are your allowed notes, mm -hmm. seven black notes, which for anybody that wants to just play on the piano, the reason why you can just play on the white notes of the piano is because it's all in one key. Yeah. Every other key uses at least one black note. You just got to know which one. Right. Um, so um, taking those seven notes that are allowed and knowing you have five mixed in that are not allowed, the best way to stretch them out within the most spread out mm -hmm. is our scale that they are in right now. There's this mathematically the furthest distance you can spread. Right. You can't do it equally because there's an odd number. Right. But it's the has the most spread out as evenly as possible. Yeah. And that was discovered before they ever knew. They didn't know any of that math when they did that. It yeah. was clearly what sounds the best. Can you hear like if you were to tune your piano in, mm -hmm. in a perfect key, let's say of C or whatever it is. Um, would you be able to hear sort of the difference between um, those those tones that are missed or that are slightly shifted because if of you the were equal to tone? play a song for me on a, a I think it's just an equal temperament yeah uh, and uh, equal, if you were to play a song for me on a style the older style where yeah. the key of C is perfectly in tune I would probably not notice immediately go oh that's something's weird about that yeah. However, I've heard recording side by side, yeah. and there's something to it. And there's also something about, we lost something really, really essential when we did this. Really? Which is the perfect fifth. The fifth is the most important interval or distance between the notes in music. Mm. And you cannot play a perfect fifth on our current tuning mm. uh, from the, the, you can't play basically the most important interval perfectly. <laughs> Uh, and it's it is rough. And when you hear a song that's done, if you know it, it's it's pretty intense hearing that and go. Oh. How do you um, strategize marketing for your business? Um, well, I am not the best marketing director in the world. I'll admit that. I have tried to find marketing is just so tricky. It's the hardest thing is you never have a direct feedback. You can't just go. I got this person because I did this billboard. Right. Um, you can, I mean, you could try, you can ask people, Hey, where'd you hear about us? And yep. I mean, they're going to give you the same answer you would give somebody. Oh, my friend told me they're going to think about it for two seconds. Yeah. Okay? If they had something stuck out in their mind, they're going to tell you there. And that's good. You can get the really, really good stuff. Yeah. But uh, for me, yeah, that's always been very difficult. Uh, so recently I've been trying to find what just those cream of the crop things and then pouring my money into that for us. It's been our yard signs. 
Yeah. Um, we offer a free uh, intro lesson for everybody. So we just put that on a sign, free music lessons, and stuck that up all over town. That yeah. was huge for us. You could actually kind of see the inflow. Right. We could have people told us directly it's coming from that. And then we you know, we'd ask if we did it long enough to determine that more people were coming to Facebook than what it cost us to get a lot of. So it was, yeah, people yeah. Facebook and that. Um, so you pay, do you pay for ads on Facebook? Yeah, we pay a couple hundred bucks a month to a yeah. thousand bucks a month for ads on Facebook and then and, we do our yard And signs. you can kind of like target local people doing you that? You can, yeah, you just target, you say everybody in Medford. Okay. Would you go for, or you go for moms yeah. in Medford. Yeah. And that's pretty good. Um, we've recently been able to utilize just the power of being a monopoly. And we're not that we're like a full monopoly, like we're the only one in town. Yeah. But we are definitely the number one name in town. Yeah. So you get a point where anything that benefits music lessons in town is going to benefit you yeah uh to a very high degree so we do things like uh teach local classes and you know, we promote ourselves there but the idea is more just get people interested in music you can do uh like we'll do our recitals in a big public place like the mall and inspire people to do that um that's really our main ways of advertising i yeah. i like the idea of low-cost guerrilla advertising totally uh i mean we're at the point now where we could benefit by a billboard or stuff like that but your return on investment for like TV ads and stuff like that. I I feel like most people that are paying for TV ads, even some of the big people, yeah, are spending money that doesn't need to be spent. Well, yeah, because you're first of all, you're not hitting the the you're not targeting, right? You're hitting a super broad demographic, which in in the case of music lessons, who knows? Right. Maybe that would be effective, right. but. In a lot of cases, especially if you're more of a niche business, right. that's rough. It is hard. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you want to be able to reach the people where you're at. I've tried some interesting marketing techniques. I tried, um, I got a tool that showed you the income level of different streets in Medford. That's cool. And so I would go on the highest level income streets and yeah. I put a little sign on every door that offered music lessons. Yeah. Nothing. Not really? a single return. Uh, people didn't like that. It's, yeah. it's too personal. It's too aggressive. Tried the bulk mailers, yep. not a single callback. Interesting. And targeting, targeting only hundred dollars to $300,000 a year income people. Yeah. The, our prime demographic, uh, not a single callback. Interesting. Uh, very, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, I mean, it might work for a different business. For us, right. they... <sighs> they just want to be told about you and they want to know you're there. I mean, we might've seen yeah. some return over the time, but that all of that's not, it was worth as much as two signs on somebody's way to work. Yeah. Because it, it comes off almost like too aggressive. Right. I think at that point. Exactly. Um, we what could about, do like a yearly thing where we send up something on like your dentist you get on your birthday. That'd yeah. Be about I was kind of thinking about that do. too. Yeah. Like, have, have you tried that at all? That's something we're doing in our next stage. Cool. Uh, big thing for us is we're going to try, start trying to recapture old clients. And that's a big thing with that. Yeah. Um, it's I, with music lessons too. There's such a demand for it that even in a smaller town like Medford, we've survived off just the incoming new students for a long time. It's it, There's a lot of things we could do that will make our business run better, yeah. but we've had a very strong pipeline of mm. incoming students. So now it's about figuring out how can we, you know, 300 students a month is probably the max for Medford at that level. Yeah. How can we get it beyond that? Yeah, like actually growing the, the market share Right, itself. exactly. And then what can we do that is, is we can take to any town and do it that way? Yeah, absolutely. That's... That makes a ton of sense. Have you ever tried um, 
doing, uh, I don't know, posting out like, so you know how there are bulletin boards like everywhere across We've town? Done, I mean, I put my business cards on those yeah. guys and that's that's something. You get yeah. some people that see that. Honestly, what's a great one is Craigslist for music lessons. Yeah. Well, $3 totally. Craigslist ad will get you 10 or 15 students usually. That's wild. Uh, that was the only advertising I did for a long time for years when I was just Epic. doing by myself was on Craigslist. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Craigslist uh, still is so used. Yeah, even it's not as much as it was before. Yeah, I mean Yelp is awful. Yeah, um, we've done Google ads, and those, it's, it's so hard to see a return on what you're doing. And and Google doesn't have the same. Well, maybe they do, but it doesn't seem like they have the same level of data as Facebook in terms of right. like where people live. Exactly. So. Yeah, there's a lot of Google stuff where it's like, ah, that doesn't seem to add up. Like, yeah. I don't think there's that many adult women in Medford <laughs> uh, that age range. So yeah. That's basically the whole population. <laughs> so yeah, what what do you think your primary demographic is? And um, do you use that information um, when you're kind of advertising? Um, anyway? Our number one demographic is got to be the soccer mom. Mm. That's a huge thing for any, you know, service industry aimed at children. Yeah. Is you're not, it's, you're the, we're in a different kind of industry than somebody like a plumber or uh, somebody, a lot of those other ser typical service industries right. where our person we're interacting with is not the person that's paying us yep. most of the time. And we get the adult students, but most of it's the kids. Mm. Um, so you're aiming at the children, you're the parent of those kids. Yep. So soccer moms is a big one. Uh, we're lucky to have a very high uh, amount of medical people in Medford because those people, they're high earners, yep. very busy. They yep. need stuff for their kids to do and yep. they want their kids to be successful. So they do the typical smart kid thing and put them in music lessons. Uh, besides that, it's people wanting to take up music as a hobby. Like they're adults that oh, I want to be able to play at my local bar and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, is that a, a fairly sizable chunk of your, probably a 30%. That's awesome. People. Yeah. Probably 70% kids, 30% adults. What about like senior citizens? A good amount of senior citizens. Yeah, yeah. We're actually now doing a program where we, um, it's presented to the students as an opportunity for them to perform. Mm. Um, but they go and play at senior centers. Oh, and so cool. it really is an advertising opportunity for us. We get, that's cause you get idea. those grandparents that pay for their kids to do music lessons and they'll just, they'll say, I'm going to keep paying for it no matter what. That's, and then, the, yeah, it's a lot yeah. better than the parent who's seen the direct result and goes, the kid's not practicing. I want to stop paying. Yeah. Grandparent just wants to pay no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. That's epic. Oh yeah. They are very good. And like any business, you're, it's the 80-20 rule. Mm. Uh, it applies to pretty much everything. 20% of your clients drive 80% of your income. Yeah. Um, this, and I don't know, it, it might not be exactly that in the numbers, but it's very close. Uh, it's the whales. It's the people that um, you know are going to come in. Most people are going to come in. If, if they stick around, they're going to stick around for a couple months and they're going to give up. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, that's the biggest thing we're working on right now is, is prolonging that and turning those people into the uh, more long-term clients. But it's the people that come in. I've got one guy that comes in now and he's been taking lessons with us for five or six years. His kids have been taking lessons. He's got two girls. Yeah. They paid every single month. He's probably, it's been like four or $5,000 we made off this one client. Dang. And it, he's seen direct results from it too. It's not just a one-way transaction, but um, you know that him alone has covered many, many, many people that come in and use our free trial and never yeah. see us again. Yeah, um, totally. Uh, it's a it's always a numbers game. It's always statistics. You can never yeah. be guaranteed anything. So it's always it's a you know it's gambling. It's but it's where is my where am I more likely to make money than not? 
And with our free trial, we've found over the years that more people stick around um, than don't. And the vast majority of people that come in yeah. will end up paying for at least enough to cover their trial. And then it's you don't really care about those. That just makes your overhead. Then it's the people that stick around for a long time. That's where you make your money and you want to foster them. That makes sense. Yeah, I've, I've heard the analogy of like um, business is kind of like a funnel where you're like, you get, or maybe more like a filter. Right. You, you kind of get like an inflow of people and then some of them will stick around and some of them will right. go off. And like the bigger your sort of filter uh, nozzle, let's say, right. uh, the better because that yeah. more kind of income And for one, a long time when I was teaching by, just by myself, uh, you know, I had 50 or 60 people I worked with, uh, which for a lot of teachers, that was, that's like crazy. How do you work with that many people? And, uh, but for me, it's because I just, it's a half hour each person and I would yeah. put them back to back. Um, I didn't focus on things like, uh, customer outreach when I was teaching by myself or really calling people back very well, yeah. um, which as negative as that sounds almost acted as a preemptive filter to only bring in the people that would actually stick around. So I could actually, you know, I knew each person I would bring in was yeah. going to do that. That's when you're working by yourself, that, that does work a little bit. If you can only take on so many clients, yep. you want to be very selective about how you, who you work with yep. and setting up some sort of barrier to entry to yourself if you're good enough kind of work in your advantage yeah but yeah and <laughs> now we're at the point where it's like no if you're gonna willing to pay us we're gonna bring you in here so. yeah that makes sense so how what is your kind of thought on um bringing back like you were saying earlier uh past clients that that have left so that's a tricky one too you got to figure out you know why they had left um a lot of it is just staying in contact with people yeah. people are um you know, they're they're like kids. They get distracted by shiny objects, whatever's the <laughs> most important thing or the newest thing in front of them. Yeah. So you get the kid that came in, uh, maybe he was taking lessons with you for six months to a year, and then he wants to do soccer for a season. Yeah. You know, you know once they go to do that, they're probably not coming back. Yeah. They say, oh, we'll be back next, you know, after soccer. Uh, if you can capture them and, and re-get them and just get their foot back in the door. That's yep. our biggest thing is yep. um, getting those people back within the first three months or the people that take a vacation and pause or just need to take a little bit of a break. Yeah. If we can recapture most of those or a good percentage of those, that would be huge for totally. us. Uh, there are some people that it's just like, yeah, they've tried it. They've had their experience. They're not going to go back for it. And yeah. it's difficult as a business owner, but you almost kind of accept that those people, you could chase them down. You could put all your resources into getting that person, yeah. but it's not worth it. Yeah, because you're not going to necessarily change their mind. You're not going to have a return not, on investment. Yeah, it's not yeah. worth the, the mm -hmm. amount of effort and time that yeah. you're going to put into that. That's one thing I liked from 4-Hour Workweek is he talked about how he had, um, you know, he had these 100 clients that he worked with. Yep. And he realized, he looked at it, he goes, most of my work from the week comes from 20 clients. And these 20 clients represent a small fraction of my income. Yep. Uh, so he gave those clients away to somebody else. Yeah. He goes, and now I... it. it it's even though I've technically lost money, I have my entire week open. Now I can do something else at that time. And that's how it is sometimes that there are certain clients where it, it's just better to tell them, you know what? I get it. You know what? This isn't going to fit. Why don't you go ahead and find Or you don't want to do this. It's, okay. it's totally okay. Yeah. We get it. Yeah. I started telling my teachers when they're, because uh, we require people uh, put their payment info down. We've, we've very Netflix similar models. Totally free to try it out. Um, if you're going to be signed up with us and we have the lowest cost in town for the best service, 
you're going to automatically be charged every month. We're not going to do the th- thing. We're not going to hold a spot for you if it's either or. Yep. Um, we'll get people that go, well, I just want to pay in cash or I'm not comfortable giving my card info. And while well, I used to argue with them and try, not even argue, but try and talk them into it. Sure. I've told my teachers now just immediately, somebody says, hey, that's absolutely no problem. This probably isn't going to work out for right now because we do need that. But why don't you go do, do some research on us, talk to your family and friends. And yep. if you feel comfortable, you call us back. Zero pressure from us at all. Yep. And now the majority of those people eventually call us back. It it kind of makes sense because uh, being uh, a customer that doesn't like being pressured, right. especially in like a, a retail setting. Yeah. Like I will actually walk out of a of a clothing store or something yeah. if there's kind of a pushy salesman. Oh, yeah. Because it's, it's uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. It's very, the whole car salesman mentality. Yeah. Like I've had them before where it's like, no, nah, bro, I just I'm sorry. This is not going to happen. And yeah. I'm, I'm too... Like, do I have to just outright tell you? Because I'm trying to give you the signals that yeah. I don't want it. And once somebody's giving you those signals of, they're already saying no. Yeah. They're just, they just don't want to tell you. Then 100%. You're not going to change their mind. I mean, you yeah. could. Yeah. But if you're, if you're not doing a one-off sale type of business, you're not going to have a happy client. That's going to be just a pain in your butt. And that person's going to remember that. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a, uh, you know, a thing we've come to recently t- where it's like, Sometimes it is best to it, to spend a little bit of money to not have uh, some person have a bad taste in their mouth. Yeah. So like you'll get somebody that's, you know, you got your rules. They didn't follow the rules uh, and they want their money back for something, even though they didn't hold up under, under the contract. At some point, it's best to just go. That's totally fine. Yeah. I've started telling my guys, it's like we aren't going to make money off people that don't want to pay us. That's not what we're in the business for. We want to focus on those people that do want to pay us and reap the benefits from that. The percentage of people that we're fighting to actually get the money for is so small. And the amount of time it's, it's, it spends, I spend more time on an assistant, more money on an assistant's time to recoup that without fail. (laughs) So it's best just to tell them, fine, here's your hundred bucks back. We'll call us again later. It's the same (laughs) reason credit card companies, uh, accept something like I don't know what the actual number is, but it, it's in the ballpark of like $300 billion in fraud every yeah. year. They're like, it's just a thing. It's just a part of And it's business. too expensive to try to curb it yeah. in a in a way that would really mitigate it. Uh, yeah, we've got, like, we had a guy that um, his card wasn't, uh, didn't process correctly and we gave him a month of credit and he had three kids and then he skipped town uh, with a rental piano like six, seven hundred. Yeah, guys on collections. Yeah. Uh, most people, no. Yeah. 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 And even That's even because of that case. guy, we they they called us like, yeah, he gave you a fake name. <laughs> so it's like yeah. it's not worth it. I yeah. I have never seen a single cent from trying to recoup money from a client that did not that honestly didn't want to pay me. Like yeah. you can send them, you can do whatever you want, but if they're determined to not pay you, yeah. you're just making them mad. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. One well, and in the case of a piano theft it's like the legal system's gonna have yeah to exactly it's anyway. like what are we gonna do yeah. yeah the guy took a yeah, it was like a 200 hundred dollar keyboard so it's yeah. like, what are they gonna do yeah totally <laughs> um well since this is the uh rogue creators podcast okay. um it is kind of at least at this point rogue valley specific um what are some things that you love about the rogue valley and then what are some things that uh that you would love to see change <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way of putting it yeah uh well the Rogue Valley, the two famous things, well, at least one famous thing that everybody knows is that um, we've ended up on multiple lists of the worst towns to be single in when you're young. There's mul- <laughs> We top the That's list funny. there. And it's because we have so many elderly people and it's, it actually is very much tied to another 
lesser known list we should end up on, which is the best places to retire and or raise a family. Yep. So, I mean, it kind of comes hand in hand. This yeah. town is very good if you are married with kids or you're retired. Yep. And it's very safe for that. A little bit less so in the most recent years. Especially um, Medford. <laughs> yeah, especially Medford, yeah. So uh, I do like, it's very gorgeous. And you can just go out and do that. There's the culture while... There are some people that are really trying to make it kind of Portlandy. Mm. For the most part, part it's a culture of live and let live. Yep, people are very okay with you doing whatever you want to do. You can you can be whatever, uh, and they're not going to be too judgy about it. At least not more than just you know socially, right? Yeah. They're not going to ostracize you. Yeah, um, that's really nice. It, there, it's boring sometimes. It's yeah. small, but yeah. I mean that's that's sleepy. Yeah, it's, it's that could be a positive. Um, could be. It could be. I wish if there you're was, younger, maybe not so much. Yeah. I mean, if I if I was the mayor and I had complete control, yeah. I would definitely do something about downtown and the homeless issue. Mm. Uh, that's been just a huge problem for us. Is yeah. you know we're trying to operate a children's setup um, in an area that is just inundated with uh, uh, vagrants. Um, that would be one thing I would work on. Um, trying to maybe bring in a little bit of uh, a better caliber of business. We're getting some business now, but it's like our most, our biggest investment recently is the casino. Yeah. It's like, okay, more things like Lithia, less things like the casino. Yeah, uh, totally. I, I like it. It's got promise. It's hopefully continues its growth and keeps growing there and doesn't kind of peter out, which is kind of a recently been a little bit of a risk. Yeah. And do you, did you have um, issues during COVID uh, <laughs> I thought it was like a piece of fuzz and I grabbed it. It was a fly. It just like looked at me like, what are you doing, bro? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have uh, some like weirdly lethargic flies yeah, in our house sometimes. Almost. Gross. Um, yeah. Did you guys have um, struggles during uh, COVID? Oh, I mean, we had to. We were an in-person set up where you're within three feet of your instructor. <laughs> <laughs> it was very difficult. Yeah. Uh, I remember watching the news and I told my clients if they cancel Pear Blossom, we'll close, we'll take an extra week off for spring break to let this all blow over. And they canceled the Pear Blossom and we let them know it was two weeks because we were already taking spring break off. We said it's going to be an extra week. And before the end of that week, I had already called everybody and said, I had to beg them, please don't quit. We're switching to virtual lessons. Your teacher's going to call you on Skype. And 30% of them immediately quit. Um, and I'm surprised that number wasn't higher, honestly. They loved their instructors. That's awesome. And, that's, and a lot of them was, my kids are stuck at home. I want them to have something. To yeah, so that was totally. a bonus for us. A uh, lot of people who had to quit just because they, just, I don't know where my money's going to come. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was rough. Uh, we switched to a full virtual model for six months to a year. Um, we had, we finally were able to get back in. And then there was the whole fight about masks. It's like, what do we want to, we tried our best to not take a position. Like personally myself, I, I wore a mask immediately when it was like, okay, I'm going to go to, and then as soon, and I was like, okay, it's time to stop. Like yeah. I was, I was, I was one of the first ones to wear them, but also one of the first ones to be like, okay, I'm ready to take this off. Yep. Like, it's okay. But at the same time, I was like, people can do whatever they want to do. Yeah. However, if you are working with people and they're paying you, you have to do what they want to do. And so for a lot of our teachers, it was very difficult because we've got 
a lot of teachers that are very much on the left and a bunch of them that are very much on the right yeah. and the good ones that are just right in the middle. <laughs> uh, but a lot of our teachers, uh, you know, they're all good teachers. Uh, but some of our teachers that were more on the right, the problem was they did not want to wear a mask. I had people threatening to quit because we I was telling you have to wear a mask. And for right now, we can't go back in to the institute unless you wear a mask. And then as it started to peter off, I had some that were, I was telling them like, I'm sorry, you can't continue to tell your students they have to wear a mask. Like, yeah. they, it's not a rule anymore. Yeah. Uh, it, so it was it was rough coming and going. It was very, yeah. very rough. The benefit for us is that a huge amount of teachers retired after COVID. Our biggest competition is elderly people teaching out of their own home. Yeah. Huge amount, a wave of people retiring there. A lot of teachers moving out of So Medford, less competition. Less competition. Yeah. Um, and the fact that we actually were open, even offering virtual lessons, uh, got us a lot of people from, they just stopped. So we came out of it much better than we went into it. We probably, I mean, without making some big changes, which we're doing right now with the getting to the mall and everything, we probably, yeah. we're probably at the soft cap for Medford. So we may have reached that a little earlier, yeah. but overall, I think it was a benefit for us. That makes sense. It just was a really rough couple of years. And the PPP loan did for not cover a, for a fraction of most it. businesses yeah, yeah that, it was insane i, I want to say some i forget what the number was but there's some like shocking numbers of how many businesses closed oh yeah during yeah. COVID. oh yeah and, and uh i mean i can't imagine if you're just doing some new startup and you just got a big loan and yeah. then they get a, it it was it, it was insane like yeah. what are you the you have to close your doors and to what we're going to give you to recoup it is a portion of your payroll cost that's it yeah. like Okay, I can pay some of my employees, yeah. and that's. But I can't. I I, I got owe vendors. I owe. I have overhead. Yeah. I was lucky enough to have a very good uh, landlord who said who forgave three months of rent. That's He's amazing. like, you guys don't. You can. I told him we close our doors, and he said, well, you can just keep them closed. Don't worry about paying rent until wow. this day. Wow, that's was, lucky. That was great. That that's was very good. Awesome. Uh, but yeah, not everybody's that lucky. I've worked with some good people too. So. Yeah. No, and and I think that's one of the benefits of being one of the highlights of being in Medford right. or, or the Rogue Valley and, and, or especially kind of knowing your community right. is, is you can kind of build those good relationships yeah. with your landlord. Who's yeah. yeah. I've had some, I've had good, a couple legs up some good people that I've worked with there. The guy we rent from now at one of our studios and we get a screaming deal on it. Uh, and it's right downtown. And he's, he told me, he's like, I had a guy offer me three times what I'm charging you now to put a pot shop in here. I don't want him in here with a pot shop. <laughs> I was like, oh, great. And we ha we got that place because he wanted a good quality family business. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's excellent. You, you hit that. Yeah. And yeah. we're quiet neighbors that don't cause trouble. Yeah. No. <laughs> Lucas, one time when he was managing for me, that somebody parked in our spot and he gotten a little bit of tiff, left a note on their windshield and ended up being the manager of the church next door. <laughs> and I called him. I said, I don't care who was on the right. We need this place. You are going to go up. <laughs> and he was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, we just, we don't cause a fuss. That's yeah. what we're going to do here. Yeah, so, yeah, totally. You can, when it comes to business like that too, if you can find some things like that where you're, it's not a, like we've always, we've rented in some really not atypical places. So like we'll rent some office space yeah. and teach music. You can find ways to save money when you're trying to get that early stages and people yeah. are going to accept a level of. And that's, I think that's one of the things that I find pretty inspiring about your yeah. story is that it's like, if you don't 
ask you don't receive right and you you've tried in, in a lot of yeah. kind of creative ways right made it work oh I, yeah when i one of my first studios that i rented by myself i was like i can afford a studio or an apartment i can't go both <laughs> yeah so i rented a studio and i slept in the back like that's what i had it was it was awful i would yeah. i would shower with a y but yeah or when i lived in the holly theater i would ride my bike to equal point with a guitar on my back. It's like, cause that's, this is, this is what I'm doing. This is my yeah. only source of income. I got to do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, it's kind of epic. You're oh, yeah. like, you just made it happen. Right. Yeah. It's just a long journey. I don't know if I would be able to do it again. Yeah. It's a lot, maybe not at this age. If I go back to 18, I could probably do it again. Yeah. Your, your energy does kind of dissipate as you get older. It's, it's a real thing. It's good. I had a lot. Yeah. When I was young. So I'm yeah. just at a normal stage now. Yep. That is nice. So what's the vision for the future of Rogue Music Lessons? Well, our goal is to be able to create a formula where we can go into any city and connect the musicians in that city with people that want to take music yeah. lessons. Um, we've got a pretty good formula, I think. Uh, a couple key things that we do. One is uh, our pricing. We're able to... We're able to, by being selective with who we work with and finding the right people, mm -hmm. we're able to find people that uh, we're able to charge a lower price by still offering a very good quality product. Yeah. Um, also, we, and as opposed to most of the music studios like us, we have a very strong uh, ability to go out and get students, um, which I don't see from a lot of uh, competitive music studios. Um, and we're pretty much solely focused on doing music lessons. And we understand how to go in and get them in and, and keep them. Um, a lot of studios are very focused on either just being very good at teaching lessons and that's their thing. Um, or they're focused on like their guitar center and they have retail and they sell lessons. For us, it's more just about, we want everybody to be able to do it. And if you want to do this, we'll do this. So that's something I haven't seen uh, be offered. And, yeah. and with, I, I do feel like music lessons is some, a ubiquitous need, kind yeah. of a universal thing that there's going to be desire for, at least in the United States anywhere. Yeah. Um, and for the most part, if you if anybody wants to get music lessons, it's like, okay, which old lady do I go find at their house? <laughs> or I go down to Guitar Center. Yeah. So I believe there is a market opportunity that's been unexploited. Yeah, you're the, you are the Uber. Right, exactly. Very lessons. much the it, where we get those people that sign up to work with us and, yeah. and do it that way. Um but I see us. But but you also have more quality constraints. Exactly, we're very we're much more hands on uh, with our control of our people. Yeah. But it's very much a similar like the reason Uber is such an interesting comparison is because you find somebody that already can do the thing. Yeah. And they sign up to do it with you. Yeah. But there's still a level of independence as an instructor. You're not you don't have a boss that directly over says sitting over your shoulder and do yeah. that. You're for the most part you're working by yourself. Yeah. Um. And you're, yeah, very independent. So our goal is to, next to test this out to prove ourselves in three or four cities outside of Medford. But then I could see that turning into a network of um, schools all across the West Coast at first, theoretically expanding into the country. It's amazing. Um, that's our goal for it. And whether that means we do this or we set up a, a really good series of uh, procedures and eventually sell this to somebody else and I move on to something else. Yeah. Um, I mean, at this point, I, I it's like, I can't, this seems promising enough to keep devoting myself yeah, to Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I mean, especially since it's in, in a great growth phase mm -hmm. at this point. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, I, this recession could be interesting, but we'll see what happens. I, 
I've read some articles about this recession that make it like it's not a typical recession yeah. in the sense that there's a lot of companies have a lot of money still. Mm -hmm. And so they can actually keep a lot of their employees, which right. is like, is that a typical recession? Yeah. Question is, will they, if nobody's buying, are they going to do stock buybacks? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. That's a great, that's right. a great point. Yeah. Stock uh, buybacks. One more restaurant. Can I steal yeah. one more of these guys? From yeah, me? absolutely. How, how do you stay mentally motivated to keep going with business? Because I know businesses are super taxing. Um, That's a big one. I would, uh, I would characterize my work style as weaponized bipolar. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, I do have a tendency to work on a task just with an obsession and, and, Go at it, go at it, go at it, and then crash. And so that's that's unsustainable. So you have to figure out a way to kind of ride that wave. Yep. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes you go like, I've got to get this thing done. Yep. And I'm going to finish it in this go because if I don't, I'm not going to be able to get back at it. And yeah. sometimes, you know, so, uh, and that sometimes can act as a pressure release valve. So yeah. You're doing all your stuff and then it, things build up and you go, today I'm getting, I'm, I'm doing this task. Yeah. This task alone. So, uh, I mean, that's how I've operated for a long time, but at the same time, that does lead you to a point where you're eventually only doing that. So the best way that I've found recently to stay focused is kind of counterintuitive, and that's shutting off and taking care of just the mundane tasks. I'm not to the point where I'm like the Jordan Peterson, like you got to have your bed made. Yeah. It's like having a clean house yeah. is very important. Um, no, it, it absolutely is because it... It kind of resets your mind. A it does. Bit. Yeah. yeah, you got to go. And if if I'm I, I'm stressed because I've got to get payroll done for the day, yeah. and nobody's turned in their time cards, and I'm just working on that. But at the same time, in the corner of my eye, I can see that my laundry's here, and I'm walking. I can feel the grit on my floor as I'm walking around. It's like I, it's just makes it's a bad work environment. Yeah. So that's totally. a big thing. Um, do you work from home mostly? I work from home a lot. I yeah. have the ability to do most of my work from home. Mm. There, that is a trap within itself. hundred um, percent. I have found the value in going to the office, even if that's just, I'm gonna go do, I'm gonna work from the office for an hour. Yeah. Um, uh, very important uh, to do that because you gotta check in. Um, it's one of the difficult things of having multiple studios, multiple teachers is, it's very tempting sometimes to have focus on one studio and realize I haven't been down to the other studio in a couple of weeks and you check in there and realize like, nobody's vacuuming the floors. Over yeah. So that's, you know, you gotta do that. Um, as you get bigger and it's something I'm realizing more and more recently, but the value in having people mm -hmm. is so important people you can trust. Yeah. Um, having somebody that, you know, if something comes up that I haven't prepared them for, they're going to make a decision, yeah. whether that's the right decision or the wrong, they're going to do something yeah. to handle it. And yep. they're not going to just freak out and shut down. That's super important. Or the, um, like when I was trying to do customer service and also run the business that would not work out just because I would get these things that had to be done right now. And then people are calling because they can't find the studio and I'm not able to answer the phone. So right. having somebody whose dedicated job is just always answering the phone. Yeah is immensely important yeah um, having having your roles and knowing that the things you aren't doing are being taken care of now that's at a early level 
that's very important to be able to do to have your finger in every pie and know how to do everything in the business is a great skill. Totally. But that maxes out about five employees. And then at that point, you you have to have a manager, somebody who's yeah. doing that for you. You have to have somebody who's taking your vision and enacting that for you. And how how hard and like tips and advice in terms of um, transitioning from that mode where you're 100% doing everything mm -hmm. to delegation? Well, that's where I am currently at right now. Yeah. And that's a hard spot. Um, similar to where, you know, this a current iteration of the business is my second or third attempt at doing mm. this. Um, and, you know, you learn things from each one. Uh, the assistant I have working for me now is the fifth or sixth assistant that I've tried to bring on. And the first few times was bring somebody on and then realize, oh, I, these are the things about myself that I can't, this is just a huge mess. I can't bring somebody into this yet. I have to fix my own stuff first, take yeah. the plank out of my eye uh, <laughs> there. And then the, the, after that, it was learning, okay, this is not the type of person. You have to find a very specific type of person. So that's difficult is when you are finding people is uh, whilst it's a double-edged sword, while a good person can be a huge help, mm -hmm. uh, somebody who's not as good is going to cause more work for you. Yes. And But then there's also the point of even the best person in the world initially is going to be an investment on your part. 100%. My assistant originally doubled my workload for the first few weeks. Right. Uh, and because I was have to train him and do all that. But now I get a 15 minute check-in phone call from him once a day or he'll call me if he needs something. Yeah. And it's it frees me up. I've had a few days now. It's like I actually take an hour off, which That's is great. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So have you gotten kind of... Um, I don't know, some sort of mental checklist of like the qualities that uh, this that you look for in in a good candidate for um, particular jobs. Yeah. So you figure out what you want. And the thing is, that's a lot of businesses do the uh, thing where a lot of um, corporate ladders have the idea where you can um, promote yourself into your own incompetence where you, or you get promoted to your level of incompetence, is what they say. Right. So you keep getting promoted because you're so good until you reach a point where you can't be good anymore. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that some people are going to be good for some jobs and not good for others. Like yeah. for me, uh, I have been fired from multiple line jobs, job or <coughs> jobs where I have to, <coughs> excuse me, I've been fired from multiple jobs where I have a list of things that I have to do and follow that list. I'll, even a, a very high-skilled, high-paid job there, not just somebody's, you know, on a conveyor belt, but where you have to follow this set list and do that. And that's something I am not good at. I, I get I get burnout real quick. But I do good at at having a thousand kind of things that need to be taken care of and being able to handle those, the kind yeah. of more man. And then you get people um, that are extremely good at being uh, helpers. And that's something I've looked for. That's a hard thing to find an assistant too, yeah. is somebody whose whole mentality is, what can I do to make this easier on you, but also competent enough that they can do it. Yeah. You know, it's hard to find, because oftentimes you get somebody that if they're very competent, they want to be the leader. And you got to find somebody who's competent, but also wants to be the support role. Sure. That's a great assistant. That's something yeah. I've I've found recently uh, that I've been working with. Um, and then as I've I've brought on a partner recently who's um, going to be managing for me in the Medford branch yeah. and helping cover uh, get our curriculum updated and stuff. And so that is sometimes when you have somebody at that higher level is hiring somebody who can 
do the things that you couldn't, fill the roles you couldn't, um, that's a tricky thing too. Uh, yeah. And finding somebody who's willing to work within your organization and follow your vision that's uh, smart enough to know what they want to do and to be able to argue with you and say, well, I think it should be this way, but also to follow your vision at the end of the day. Totally. Um, those are hard roles to fill. The upper management roles are the most difficult. It's, you know, you can make up for one bad instructor in your <laughs> team, but if yeah. your manager is is poor, the whole thing's going to suffer. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's, that's a kind of a deal breaker at that point. Yeah. And I've also, you know, with those it's, you have to have a, a way to test them. You know, with my assistant, it was bring him on and I you know, test him out for a few weeks, see how he does. Um, it wasn't going to kill me if I, you know, had to let him go. Sure. Uh, the manager here, I'm luckily lucky enough to have somebody that's worked with me for several years and has demonstrated their ability hiring awesome. with, from within. Um, yeah. I can not imagine trying to, hire for an upper management position from somebody from the outside. That would just be a nightmare. Yeah, there's just so many um, unknowns yeah. with that situation. Oh, yeah. And and people can put on a very good veneer. Right. And then... Yeah, maybe if you're out. a bigger company with a little bit more, you know, somebody that can cover the slack and yeah. you could really look into their background and stuff. Sure. But, you know, that, who has the time for that? <laughs> um, I think my final question for the evening is uh, if you were to give yourself advice back back in the day... Uh, when you were just starting out this whole business venture, what do you wish you knew? Uh, what do you wish you knew that you now know? Um, well, it's difficult because there are a lot of things that, you know, you say, oh, I wish I would have changed that, but you don't know where you would have ended up otherwise. You yeah. did the things you did for a reason in the moment, at least. Mm. Um, one thing I would have done maybe differently mm. is uh, adjusted, charged more. You know, I often yeah. charged very low prices, but that brought us in a lot of people. Um, yeah, learning to um, learning to bring other people on and to be comfortable with that. That's yeah. a big thing. And but everybody says that is that you know you don't bring on an assistant until it's too late, and then you learn. Oh, I should have done this a long time ago. That's yeah. a big thing. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, it's easy. I, I wish I would have spent a little bit more time focused on the future rather than getting caught up. It's very easy to get caught up in the day to day and start yeah. teaching, especially when you are working with, uh, there was a long time where I was teaching 40 people a week and trying to manage a team of teachers. I would have told myself to strip that down a, long, a lot earlier and say, okay, you just, even though you're going to be hurt and only work with 10 or 15 people or work with nobody and just focus on doing that. Totally. That might be one thing I would do there. Um, yeah, I might networking is something I probably would have done more yeah. uh, for sure. That's one thing I am. I'm probably the number one reason that I'm excited to bring the partner I have right now. He comes from SOU. Uh, he's very good at networking. He's been doing that. Um, I've been uh, very much a solo uh, practitioner there, just going yeah. doing my own thing. Um, and you get to a point where that's good, and you can you know you can you've got a lot of focus on your business. But um, we, for instance, had, do not have the greatest reputation with other music teachers in the valley. Not because we're not good, which we are. Uh, it's twofold. One is that I, and the number one is that we are the monopoly and they see so many of their students that that go over there or they they feel like they get less students and they see all of our signs. In reality, we're promoting music lessons in the Valley yeah. and that it, the you know rising tide brings up all ships. Yep. So uh, the other thing is that, you know, we work with so many people yeah. um, that 
we lose a lot of people yeah. and that any person coming, you know, they often will work with students that came from us and they maybe they had like three lessons with us and they say, well, they are they're awful or they left for a legitimate reason or they had didn't quite fit their teacher, but they don't see they only see the people that leave. Yeah. So that's not great for us at our certain level. We need to have that uh, relationship with him. And he's been building that up with them. That's awesome. Making a connection to SOU. That's also all really good stuff. Is that's, that is that how you got the Tutanoff um, Yeah, that's connection. how we got our base, our what we call our Tutanoff Academy going. That's amazing. Um, that definitely came through that. And that's extremely valuable. That's um, huge. It's huge. But at the same time, there are um, the, you know, he's got his uh, strengths and I have my strengths there too. But it's recognizing how we can support each other Absolutely. there. Um, the collaborative. It's approach. a collaborative thing. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe partnering with other people a little bit earlier would be something. If I could have um, found like a, a Lucas Wright and worked with him to build the business earlier. Yeah. That might have been one thing. Maybe start looking for investors and get this plan together. But it would have been hard to do that without knowing where we were going to go. It, yeah. was, it was a lot of experiment. Uh, Knowing that it would be successful or knowing that there was an end game would eliminate a lot of time of uh, doubt. And yeah. that would be one thing, just, you know, keeping the faith. Yeah. Um, but that's hard to do when you're in the moment and you don't know if this is going to work out. You have moments where you go like, okay, well, I'm going to, like, I tried to be a worship leader for a little while. Okay, maybe this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, knowing this, it would have said, don't just put all of your energy into that. That actually brings up a, a question, I guess. Um, how, yeah, how do you deal with that kind of mental doubt? I feel like for me, that's one of the, maybe the biggest thing that has kept me away from being mm -hmm. an entrepreneur because I, I struggle with that big time. Um, it's scary. It yeah. is very scary sometimes um, when you go, I have to do this list of things Yeah. or this business fails. Yeah. And that's on me. What comforts me in those moments is knowing at least I have the power to do those things. Yeah. Not me. In other words, if I was an employee at some big business, I could go home and I could sleep at night. But in the end of the day, those things would still be a risk for that business. It's just that now the CEO is the one worrying about him. If I was being honest with myself, I'm in the same amount of risk. He can fire me at any time. I'm just, he's, I'm taking a pay cut to not worry about it. Yeah. They're still out there. Yeah, that risk I is should still, still just be just as worried. That's a good point. But now as an employee, I don't have the direct control to actually be able to do something about it. So yeah. as a CEO, yeah, it's like, yeah, there's all this risk. But at the same time, I I get terrified of the idea of going to work for somebody else and being able to be let go. It's the same mentality, I think, that keeps me terrified of flying but loving to rock climb. <laughs> it's, the, it's the same exact idea. And it's in my head. I feel like if the plane were to start going down, I, I almost wish that the cockpit door would just pop open. I would notice the pilot's <laughs> unconscious because I feel like I could do it. You know what I mean? Like I would just want it to be in my own hands. That's the scariest part for me is going up and knowing there's nothing I can, I have no control over my Yeah. So it is scary. There yeah. have been many nights of just like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. But it's, you know, you get to be the master of your own fate, yeah. which is good. And I that get the cool. fallback of like, if, if things went to pot, I could always, you know, I could teach, you know, out of my own house. Yeah, I could. You have I could a make, backup. I could make good money doing that. Yeah, I've got a good enough. That's a great point. You know, repertoire. I'd have to probably go get some honorary degree or something. <laughs> get to go test out of some. You know, that's. I sometimes tell my teachers when they ask if I go come in, they'll be highly recommended, and they'll have taught for a couple of years, and they say, "Well, I don't have a degree," and I go. I didn't graduate high school. <laughs> and they go, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I think that's super inspiring though. Like, yeah. 
you don't have to. You education have to. is education is useful, especially if you're uh, becoming some sort of um, you know doctor or right. whatever. But um, you can self educate. It's interesting because the most valuable thing to you from the education is the education or the, the networking. Most, well, that's the thing is the most valuable to, valuable thing to other people right. is the networking. So I yeah. mean. It's almost, it's kind of backwards a little bit. It's like you go to get, but it's, it's, you go to get the education, but you're really getting the networking. Yeah. Where it's, yeah, if you go, you can get a full education just by going and doing it. Totally. And I, it's, I wish there was a way to like actually just go, I don't need that. I just need the education because yeah. you could strip down a lot of the costs and stuff. Oh, like without that. a doubt. Like, without I, a doubt. I've, I've learned. I, I I mean I've I've talked with um I've got other musicians and teachers that work for me and people that have come from the SOU program and I know after working with them that it's like yeah I've, I could I outplay a lot of the people that come out of that but at the same time I don't there's gaps in my knowledge sure. like I wish I could go back and get that education I always think like it'd be nice to go and get a performance piano degree well and you know that you can audit like classes yeah for exactly free. and I've got well now we've got. Tootin' not working here with us. He's yeah. the one who teaches us. I'm just be yeah. like, can I get some classes? Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love I, that. I like that. I, there, there is a thing about bootstrapping a business up that if you can do it, you end up with more. You you kind of are building like hacking skills, right? Uh, it, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way right. at all. No, I mean like, that in like like you are kind of like there's something about academic approaches that right. are a little bit sterile and. Right maybe don't even fit the times anymore. Right. Whereas we hacking, definitely, like yeah. I, in our curriculum, there's a couple of things that I've um, developed and worked with from students. Just my, I feel like that there is, if I had one strength, it is in, um, and it really fits with music education, not to toot my own horn, but it's being able to recognize like my ability to learn and to see how the learning process happens. Yeah. So I will often work with students, uh, you know, like when I started teaching the people that have taught me the most and it's totally, uh, you know, a, a, a catchism, but the people that teach me are my students. Yeah. And it's cause I would have a student that would be able to do something that others couldn't. Mm. And I, what is it that they're doing that they can't? And so, okay, how yeah. can I incorporate that into the, so we've found a few things just for, by working with them, that I mean, I work with these people from SOU that come with me, and I'll go like, "Here's my approach," and it's like, "This is a this is the way we're going to do it." Like yeah. most of our curriculum is going to be based off of stuff that I've been teaching and things, but it's it's just you spend the time doing it, and you it's I mean, I taught fifty or fifty to seventy people a week for five or six years. That's why, and then you know, I've taught at least twenty people a week for you know five or six years beyond yeah. that. So you spend enough time doing something, you just kind of figure out how to do it. Totally. Whereas you could have gone, you know, you could go to learn and teach and then come out at 25 and then start teaching and who's going to end up at, you know, in their 30s at further along. And it's a toss up. But. It, it totally is. And, and so like, you know, my background obviously is in software, but I I taught myself all of that. Right. And the funny thing about um, sort of self-educating is you you might have like really big gaps in your knowledge in certain areas, mm -hmm. but slowly they do get filled in more and more as you more time goes yeah. on because you see like what everyone else is doing. Right. Well, there's a problem yeah. too when with the typical approach to learning something where you go and you find a mentor and you just learn from yeah. them. You have zero experience. You get somebody. You're not going to learn how it works for you and you're right. not going to learn. I mean, every, at the end of the day, there's some things that are just true for everybody. Right. But you're not going to learn 
the things that you need to work on. Like you might already be good at some things and not, and they're going to keep you focusing on these, but you really need to work on this. That's so absolutely if true. you go and you try the thing by yourself for a period of time first, like if you want to be going back to golf, you want to start golf, you go and you, you spend a couple of months doing it on the course and, and play, then you go get some lessons and you know what questions you can ask. I can't tell you how many times when I first started taking, like was learning piano, yeah. I would go work with somebody that was really advanced and they would show me other stuff and I would go like, I don't know anything yeah. you're doing. Like you're explaining things to me, but I just, I don't even know yeah. how to say, I don't know it. Like, I don't know where to start. <laughs> I, so I'm I'm teaching um, one of my coworkers mm -hmm. right now. I'm kind of mentoring him and um, Back in the day when I first started mentoring him, it was the exact same thing. It right. was like, I'm going way too fast. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know it because I wasn't really practicing being yep. a teacher at that point. Oh, yeah. And I'm just going a million miles an hour. You can do this, this, and this. But like, you don't get in the headspace right. of like, this person doesn't like understand even the basics of yeah, what you're talking about. Yeah, they need about. to get a, you need to teach them to write a Hello World program yeah. and tell them to do it in 10 different ways. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh yeah, yeah it's it's frustrating. That's, I, he's much better than that now, yeah. but this was like four years ago. Well, that comes ago. back to that same yeah. thing of like, once you learn something, you very much forget of the mind state of what it's like to not know it. And what's so weird is I was really um, conscientious right. when I was learning software development, of like, I am in this stage, I, I'm trying to uh, intentionally remember what right. it's like to be here because mm -hmm. I know I'm gonna teach someone someday, yeah. but then I forgot it. Right, <laughs> so. well that's why, it's, I mean, especially when it comes to teaching, I have found in the times when I'm not currently practicing on my own, I can lose that. Yeah. Uh, but if I'm currently working on something that challenges me and it keeps me in that learning mentality, even if it's more advanced, I can relate to somebody who goes like, yeah. listen, I know you're struggling with this, but look, let, like I've got one student who comes in and she's a little bit older. Um, she's probably, you know, she's retired and uh, she got, kept being really frustrated with her. She's like, I've been working on this song for like three weeks. And then she came in one day and I was practicing a piece um, by Chopin and it was really rough. And then she would come in a couple of weeks and she kept hearing me play it as I was warming up for a lesson. Yeah. And I told her, I was like, one day I said, you know that piece, that's, that, that's the same piece I've been working on. I've been working on that for six months. Yeah. And she goes, what? I said, do you feel so bad now? And she goes, oh no, okay, I get it. You're always yeah. gonna be challenged. Yeah. If you're, so it really does help if you're able to relate to them. It's yep. just, if you get to, a lot of people reach like a lot of really good pianists and a lot of good people at any sport have reached a level where they're good at it, but they don't mm -hmm. need to keep getting forward, going forward anymore. So they're coasting, even though they're really bent, they're kind of coasting on that. So it's very, they're not in that mentality of how do I learn? They're just doing what comes naturally to them. Absolutely. Yeah. Very hard yeah. to teach from that position. So yeah. Like what, what do you think is the, um, yeah, the most important, uh, I, I think I keep using that like most whatever <laughs> <laughs> too much, but like, what do you think is like a, an aspect of teaching that is um, that is kind of universal, maybe? Um, well, there are a couple of things. I used to joke that I could use some of the theories that we teach music and teach anything. Mm -hmm. And the way I would teach it is go, that's really good. Try it again. And that's all <laughs> I would say. I could teach you anything in the world by just going, oh, that's awesome. Try it again. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. when it comes to teaching and learning really anything, you can't, or a couple of things. One is, you can't learn something by having somebody tell you. Yeah. It is it is impossible to learn a I mean a fact is one thing. Right. But to learn a routine skill. or a skill exactly yeah. by somebody saying it to you is fundamentally impossible. Yeah. You can learn like you can go, "Oh, that's interesting. Let me try to apply it." But if you're telling somebody like if you're explaining how to do it, you have to walk them through 
the discovery process. They have to, I mean, you can say something to them like, when you're playing, make sure you always keep your wrists up, right? And they'll hear that and they'll try to do it. <laughs> yep. But until they have that realization of, oh, hey, that's yeah. a lot easier. Yeah. Oh, and they're able, that's, they're never going to incorporate on their own. So the teaching is often, it's, it's difficult. You to you kind of repeat the same things over and over again and say it in a million different ways and yeah. trying to get that incorporated in them. Um, you're like kind of coming at like each person has a different way that their brain operates and right. you're kind of trying to come at it at different angles and like hit that concept in some way that clicks with right. their neurons or I, whatever. I'm a very big fan of if you are failing at something, mm -hmm. uh, kind of the idea of say in archery, you're always going to the left, just yeah. aim to the right. So if you're struggling with something, try to do the opposite of that thing. That's interesting. So like if for people that, you know, just come up with some exercise or something that forces you to either, it eliminates your ability to do that thing or uh, or it really encourages you to do the opposite. So yeah. that um, with students is a really good thing uh, for them. Like, especially if you find a student that's always, real basic one, you find a student that's always rushing a piece, yeah. having them play it at half speed is a very good exercise. That makes so sense. Like, if you can just determine what, where is the point where they're struggling with this, often is it's like the thing that you're hearing to may not actually be the reason they're struggling. That's a big thing is pinpointing, okay, what it is, what is it that they're actually fundamentally misunderstanding? Yeah, it's hard. Teaching yeah. music, I'd say the core thing to teaching though is stripping down your understanding to further and further basic levels. Yeah, like getting getting to the heart of uh, like the music theory. Right. I mean, well, sometimes I, my idea is that if we're struggling with something, it's because we have some sort of fundamental misunderstanding about that thing. Yep, no, that and makes that sense. might be a simple thing. Like you might have somebody that is uh, playing music and they. For instance, it's a simple fingering issue. Like they're yep. just always putting their hand in the wrong spot. Yeah, you can just you can correct that by just showing a couple of things. You might have somebody though that uh, their reaction to something, their instinctive reaction to something, is incorrect. So, like for instance, oftentimes people when they are rushing a piece yeah. uh, and they're going too fast, their instinctive reaction is to actually go faster. And it's very because it's almost like they're trying to get through it. So it's very difficult sometimes to you have to just find the point at which somebody's misunderstanding something, but it's always further back than you think it is. Yeah, you, you can, it's you have to train yourself just to think like a child and say what is the absolute most basic level of this, yeah. and then break that down into five sections. How how much do you um, deal with like uh, breaking? Uh, especially older students of bad habits and and how do you approach bad that? habits um yeah bad habits can be a hard thing uh if you have somebody that's just consistently doing something the wrong way yeah uh my main mentality is set them up in a situation where they're much less likely to do that thing okay yeah um so often that comes down to just slowing things down yeah. and giving an opportunity to think about it, uh, directly identifying exactly what they're doing. So for instance, a big thing with us uh, is recently has been people just struggle to really read a piece and play it correctly. Even after years of playing, they just kind of stow. So we've gone down to directly 
describing exactly what they're supposed to do and telling here's the exact and just go through this exact process so for instance they go through and they're trying to read a piece we tell them they need to first and it sounds obvious but i want you to tell me the name of every note that's in this piece i want you to clap the rhythm that's in this piece um, encouraging them to do the things, figure out exactly what it is they're doing yeah. and either strengthen that muscle in a specific exercise that only works on doing that thing or eliminate that thing ex- entirely from the, as an option yeah. is a big thing. That makes sense. Um, for instance, you got students, they'll have, they always mess up on this note of the phrase. I will tell them, I want you to play up to that note and stop right. Mm-hmm. Be- don't play that note. I want you to play and stop right before that note. And then we'll break. Interesting. And then play that note. That's a big thing for them. It's just. Yeah, because then then you, your focus and intentionality right. is on that note. And a big thing, too, is understanding why you're doing what you're doing for mm-hmm. students. Um, I've recently been much more focused on saying Yes, it's good to have the technique and be able to do this, but why is it that we're doing this? Can you play this song, this big complex piece by Chopin, can you play this with the left hand holding a chord and right hand simply playing a melody? Can you show me the stripped down basic version of this song and then tell me what is he doing on top of that? What are the exercises doing? Because when it comes to music, it's all patterns over very, very simple ideas. Yeah. Um, And when it comes to learning something too, there's often a very step-by-step approach to it that's just hard to find. Like for a lot of it's like learning music itself in a very step-by-step approach is easy. Yeah. Problem is that it's so hard to find what's the next step. Yeah, like like defining in a sense the curriculum, the curriculum. In, in, in such a way that it really is incremental right. rather than, yeah, I've, I've, I, I hate relating it back to what I'm teaching, but, right. <laughs> but I will again. But yeah, it, it, it's a hundred percent the same way it is with teaching programming. Like, w- what do I teach after this right. thing or after this concept? Right. Because they don't necessarily tie together. Yeah. But like figuring out that thing is is tough. I've also found for myself too that it's much more impactful. It goes back to what I was saying before: is you can't tell somebody something. Yeah. It is much more impactful to somebody if you lead them to a discovery. I love that. Um. So you tell them like some somebody asked me a question, and if you can. In any case, if you can get them to answer their own question, it's going to be way more powerful for them. So they say, why is this? And you go and you say, well, tell me what happens if you do X and Y? What's the result? I love that. I and think then that's they huge. can say, oh, okay, I get it. And like yeah. I, one thing of my students is, um, I got this one uh, kid I work with. Um, every time she hits a point where she stops and thinks about her mom in the back goes, it's A flat, just play the A flat. And I just want to go, you need to not be in here. <laughs> yeah. Because what I want to do is go to her and say, okay, awesome. What's when this note's stepping up, how yeah. far is it going up? Okay, what would that note naturally be? Or think about it. What's the song trying to say in this yep. point? Why is it going? And then if you know that, otherwise, like I talk to my students sometimes, if you take, you get beyond a certain level of music and it becomes impossible to memorize note by note. Yep. Um, you get to even like there's some pieces by uh, like Rhapsody in Blue, George Griffith. It's like 30, 40 pages of music. It Jeez. is not possible. To, yeah. a, a, not possible to play it note for note yeah. like that. I mean, it, there are people that do it, but it's not possible to just memorize individual notes. Yeah. And B, that's not how the author would have played it. Mm, yeah. So these people, I tell you, if Very you need to know, yeah, you need to know why it is the way yeah. it is. What is the story he's trying to tell? I, yeah. one of my students right now, um, what we're doing is, I, I before we learn, we're working on Claire de Lune right now. 
And I, before we learned the song, I had her play through the whole thing. I said, I want you to discover this song like Debussy would have discovered. So let's come up, let's take this melody and let's learn this melody. Yeah. Let's figure out the chords that go. And let's say, what if you're doing this, what would go underneath this naturally? And then once you get, I tell them, if you're playing a piece and you just memorize this note goes after this note, that's like trying to memorize a speech in Chinese. <laughs> you're learning it one letter at a time or yeah. phonetically. Like yeah. a person who speaks Chinese, they're going to be able to memorize the speech for its words. And not totally. only that, but if they want to tell the speech with the exact same story, but in a different manner yeah. or change things, they're going to be able to do that. It's yeah. not, if they forget one word, they're not going to be stuck because they don't know what word comes next. That's yeah, you just, that's yeah, you got to know why. Otherwise you're yeah. not going to be a good player. Yeah, no. And I, I, I think that's another universal truth right. of, of learning anything is like, it's uh, actually, it's one of the issues I've had with like learning how to bake, for instance, right. the, the way that it's taught, is very just learning recipes mechanical yeah, yeah. it's just do learning this recipes. And do that but it's like right. but why does that work why right. does baking soda work you know as a as a rising agent yeah um well it turns out you have to add acid to yeah. it and it releases co2 <laughs> like once you learn that you're like whoa i now understand this whole range and instead of looking at a recipe and going i'm going to do exactly this you go yep. and you read the ingredients yep. and you go oh cool and then you put it aside and you make the dish and it right. comes out unique and your own and right. it's definitely still the exact same dish but right. it's like that's how Alex but now it has it. all this extra meaning right and you've ab abstracted that that concept yeah. that you can now apply to 50 other yeah. locations yeah and i've been working exciting. recently on trying to for much just for myself because I always struggle with composition. Like yeah. I can learn these pieces, but composing was hard. Um, so what I've been doing recently is taking a piece like Chopin's uh, Nocturne in C-sharp minor or one of those and saying, okay, I'm going to either A, just rip off his chord progression <laughs> and play a melody on the time and try and come up with this, or I'm going to take this song and say, I mean, what I really wish people would do with classical music and they don't, you take a jazz standard, mm. nobody ever plays it the same way. Mm -hmm. ja uh, classical pieces, it's mechanically rote for rote. Yeah. So I want to take his piece and I want to take, say, his chord progression, but I want to play my own stuff in the left hand. I want to yeah. take this melody, but play my own harmonies yeah. and jazz it up. I want to create that kind of like I want to have a, an album of classical pieces redone. And it, and you, do you think that it's because uh, the academics have have kind of glung on to um, classical pieces that it became that kind of mechanical? It's uh, that. And there are some pieces, people that uh, classical um, uh, composers that suffer from their popularity in that yep. sense. Yeah. So you get people like Chopin or Bach or Beethoven, and if you do, if you change a note, people go, "Ah, oh, how could you do that?" <laughs> but if you could do some lesser yeah. known author, who's going to care, yeah. right? But it, yeah, there is a reverence for these pieces that go, "You have to play it exactly." The, but at the same time, that's completely out of harmony with the way those composers really did it. People yeah. think of these classical concerts as like when you go to the SOU Symphony now. Yeah, everybody's sitting there quietly. Yeah. Somebody comes on, they play their own piece, they bow, they. That's, they were rock concerts. Yeah. List. Uh, Isn't it sad though that we oh, yeah. lost that? They would do solos. They never played the same piece twice. Yeah. They'd riff on it. Uh, 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 Bieber mania, Beatle mania. Yeah. Those terms are based off of the original Listomania, which was Franz Liszt. Yeah. Early 19th century. Uh, yeah. or, I'm sorry, early 20th century, late uh, 19th century yeah. composer. Um, if he even hit the 20th century. 
would write pieces that you listen to now are played really stodgy. When he performed, he was the original piece where women would throw their underwear up on the stage <laughs> and people were fainting. And he, and he would be a rock star. He would just do every, he would do these whole shows. He'd show up in crazy attire. He crazy. would, oh man, they were well, absolutely- Mozart was kind of that way Mozart too. Mozart was that way too, exactly. Yeah. But we look at him and go like, oh, it has to be played just like, and that's not how they when played When do you it. think that it became uh, very, uh, What's the word like r really staunch and boring? If I had to guess, yeah, um, post World War II, yeah, once they started doing the recordings, yeah, they started playing these pieces, and it was instead of hearing a performer do it, you would hear a recorded piece, yep. And to be fair, once the original artist has passed away, there's no Chopin nowadays, there's no list nowadays. Even personally, if I were to hear somebody riffing on it, I'd be like, that's creative. I still kind of want to go listen to Chopin's original version. Yeah. Because it's so good. It is it's, so good. The, the, vo the voicings, I mean, there is that uh, definitely to it, but it definitely started to happen but, in the uh, 20th century. But don't you think it lost some of the original intent of the meaning? Like, it did. When you, when you hear it in this very, like... Uh, Contri not contrived. Gosh, I, I'm not oh, there's finding a, the right the word. The perfect example of this is uh, Debussy's Claire de Lune. Yeah. We have, Debussy is one of the earliest composers mm. that we have not recordings of him. Yeah. But what they would do is they're called piano roll recordings where mm. he, a, a piano player, a player piano reads a sheet of a paper that's been punched with holes yeah. and plays the piano. A piano recorder, piano roll recorder does the opposite. When you play it, punches on the holes. Okay. So it's yeah. not a recording. It basically replays the piano exactly like Debussy had played it. Okay. We have the piano roll recordings of him. Oh, that is cool. Claire de Lune by Debussy is unrecognizable compared That's to modern hilarious. Claire de Lune. It's, it's out of time. Well, and it reminds me of uh, the first time I've seen an opera, right. like in person. I always thought that I, operas were very like right. similar to classical music where, where it's very um, kind of melancholy. Stodgy. And stodgy and, and, and you have to dress up in fancy clothes right. and all this. It's just a big love story. It's yeah. like they're very cheesy, oh, actually. Yeah. It's almost like a modern soap opera, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's being sung at. Well, this, you like, remember the opera scene in Amadeus? Yeah, yeah. It's very much, much more like that. Yeah, it, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. But but the way that we do them now, and and same with classical music, right. it makes it feel like it's so much more like dark and it's a and yeah. there's a reverence for the old a reverence. Times. Yeah, That's exactly. Perfect That's, word. For I it. mean, there is that where we kind of treat it like that. Yeah, but I mean. I kind of like seeing somebody who opens those pieces up a little bit. Yeah, and to totally. have a little bit of fun with it. I always, I, I, I really, I would like to see an album of of modernized classical music. Well, in a sense, we do sort of modernize classical music with, uh, <laughs> maybe just because I'm I'm a, a closet fan of metal. <laughs> it is sort of classical music, but just in a really ridiculous way. Metal, I. I have heard many like pieces where I go, that's really very classical and it's metal. It's very good stuff. They are some of the most talented modern musicians. Right. I mean, it I think back to your point earlier about um like music is all about release and tension. Mm -hmm. Metal takes it too far where where sometimes it gets just boring because there's right. not enough release. There's all tension. It's yeah. all tension. Mm -hmm. Um and that's kind of the downside of it. Right. But but in terms of just the raw talent of the musicians yeah. and the 
the understanding of music theory yeah. is pretty unbelievable. Some of those guitar players can They're absolutely insane. shred. Oh my god, so gosh. crazy. Yeah, like no other modern musician I'm mm -hmm. aware of in, in outside of like kind of the academic space. Then you could just dial like uh, one I've recently get into. Like I'll go to a live show. I'll see like a funk show. Yeah, and I've recently started to be like, as much as I loved it. Yeah. I kind of have a little bit of disdain for it right now because I realized that they, they set themselves up, at least a lot of funk bands do, where you'll see like the piano player and the guitar player playing these really intricate riffs, yeah. like prog funk a little bit. And then I started playing along with them and looking at it and realizing they've set up a certain musical situation where you can literally play any note at any time. And they are playing, often they are literally running their hand up and down on just different scales. <laughs> and it it works because they've thrown all of it out the window. And yeah. it's just, it's your ear kind of gets used to just hearing that. It's more complexity. Yeah, you can be really, uh, you can be deceptively well, complex. And then tying this back to our previous conversation about this is, um, I think there is also something to uh, hearing the same, like the reason that music is kind of cultural is if you hear the same thing long enough, right. eventually you kind of get used to it and you kind of like it. And I think it's the reason, at least for me as a kid, I hated tons of styles of music. Yeah. I only liked, pretty much I only liked rock you like because of the beat. Yeah. And then, but as I got older and as I listened to more, you start appreciating the right. nuance in all these other forms of music yeah. to the point where you now, maybe it's tricking yourself, but you actually like it you know well it's like with cooking like i know if i don't like a certain degree like i used to not like jalapenos yeah or i didn't like i didn't have a big taste for onions right? yeah so you find one dish in which that thing really shines yeah. and you're like oh okay i get it and yeah. then you can incorporate that into some other things and then eventually your taste buds adapt a right. little bit or or your brain adapts a little yeah. bit and <laughs> and starts enjoying those flavors right yeah yeah, I know it's it's difficult sometimes with different styles and finding a love for all sorts of different stuff. But it's like there's still styles I don't like. Oh yeah, but yeah, yeah, I definitely I'm, like a lot more than I did as a kid. I do. I tend even as a big music guy, I tend to like stuff that's pretty approachable. Yeah, and some of my absolute favorite songs in the world have like two chords in them. How do chord progressions relate to? How, how does it relate to? Um, the scales and all that and 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 how do oh simple question yeah <laughs> no i i'm i'm elementary in my understanding of music theory so <laughs> well um the most basic answer is that within a scale yep you got seven notes yep without going into too much depth about it six of those are available to make chords off of. mm -hmm. a chord is the in its most simplest simple form is three notes separated by, uh, with a, a gap in between them. So sure. one note separating between. So you have like a, in the key of C, you got your C chord, C, E, and G. Skips mm -hmm. the D and the F. Um, you got the D chord, D, F, and A, right? So the key will determine which notes are available mm -hmm. and thereby which type of chords you have. Basically what a key does is it tells you there's only seven letters in music. Mm -hmm. um, the, the 12 notes come from, some of those letters can be sharp, slash flat, you know, those are the black notes. A key tells you for the letters A through G, which are the musical letters, this one will be natural, this one will be sharp, this one will be flat. They can't, for basic skills, they can't be both. So then depending on which note you start on, you'll get a different mix of natural and sharp notes um, based on the key, and that will determine the, what we call the quality of that chord. So the chord might be minor, uh, or it might be major, or it might be a dominant chord. Um, so for in within, within a basic 
major key, which is the Western scale. You have those six chords and they're all major or minor, or you can consider add to seven, you get like a dominant chord. You have your basic chord qualities. Each one has a very specific role. When you hear that chord, your ear expects this next thing to happen. Now you can get some creativity from with there by saying you expect this to happen, but instead you do this. So yeah. you got some creativity you can do, but again, with only six choices, you're very limited. So is it uh, more limited than, than with individual notes? So what gets into, if you're getting to like um, incorporating other notes, that mm. comes in what we call non-diatonic notes within okay. the scale. And that's where you start to get into really creative stuff. And these are notes and uh, that are maybe not within that scale, but suggest stuff outside of that. So it, it's a blend of stuff. One is there are other types of scales um, that are not as common. So you can suggest things from the other scales and every scale has their own little different feel. So you can borrow stuff from those scales. Like you're playing in a major key, you can borrow from the minor. That's kind of a simple example. Yeah. Um, a lot of more advanced music is just setting up situations where you create, again, that tension, yeah. borrowing for something that's maybe not supposed to be in that key and then moving back into it. So yeah, it gets, it gets pretty creative. You can get into um, basic borrowing chords. That's kind of the simplest way to get out of the key, but then yeah. you can get into grabbing chords that are just completely outside of the key that have this really interesting sound and you have to learn and memorize those. So it's a mix of rules that kind of present other opportunities and straight memorizing these cool different unique sounds and all of that kind of comes together to create music it's uh it gets pretty in depth i love that <laughs> i think it's super interesting so on a philosophical question mm -hmm. um what do you think it is about kind of um contemporary music i mean, this i'm sure this is gonna be polarizing but that sucks <laughs> uh well there is a you can qu quantitatively um, state that music has decreased in complexity. Yeah, I think that's um, what it is. It is reducing itself. It, it, you can you can analyze the number of notes used in a modern song, the number mm -hmm. of chord changes used in a modern song. They're um, statistically less, uh, statistically significantly less than uh, songs, the average song of an older period. Um, there's partially that. Yeah. And then it's also mixed with we've studied so much stuff that if you get into what people consider like the advanced modern music, it's so far removed from what you would listen to on a day-to-day -day basis that you can't approach it. So you've got these two polarizing extremes. You've got pop yeah. music and modern music, which are the two main genres in modern music there. And they're either absurdly simple or absurdly complex. And and why do you think it is that there's not like a a current middle ground between those. Well, there there is. There's always people playing songs across the entire spectrum. Yeah. It's just these are what the culture has chosen to amplify, I think, more than anything else. So with pop music, I mean, they're both they're both predictable end results of the prog progress of society. Yeah. Um, people are, uh, they like what they're comfortable with. Yeah. So the more people start putting that into, basically you're getting like the, just the, the cake, the milk, and like the cookies yeah. of music, it's yeah. just totally fattening. It's just all nice. Yeah. Um, and that gets to the point where it's like, okay, it's a little bit too much, but. Well, and it, and it also seems like we've gone to, uh, away from sort of the complexity of the actual, um, uh, melody mm -hmm. and more towards like, I don't know, um, more towards like the way that we do, the vocals, right. like especially in in um, 
uh, R&B and, and, um, and hip hop. Right. Like there's this kind of, um, there's a lot more dynamics with the vocalist than right. there is with the actual instruments right. behind them. Yeah, you can get to that where they maybe have focused on vocalizations rather than instrumentalism yeah. and, and um, instrumentation. That's definitely just a character of modern music. Yeah, uh, I think the biggest thing that we're talking about the complexity of music um, and the just the overall depth of it yeah. also is who is the audience nowadays. Yeah, uh, today the audience is literally everybody. Yeah. Anybody can go out and buy a CD and or download an album. Um, and these people have zero, most of the time, on average, zero musical education. Yeah. Um, whereas when you have, let's you go back to the um, late or the early 19th century, you get people that are, the people that are studying music are the elite who have the ability to either go to concerts or purchase sheet music. Those people have mostly studied music. Yeah. So they have a, a fundamental understanding of it. And they, you know, they were often when they would, uh, uh, like when the radio was first invented, people would listen to the radio, they would sit alongside and read the sheet music. Beside. That's interesting. So, and this was the average person. They had the ability to do that because, or the average music consumer. Because sure. the average music consumer was a wealthy person with spare time. And yep. they had studied this. So, that's somewhat is is just par for the course of, of music going to the masses. Yeah. But the difference too is that being so ubiquitous, I think that the majority of music is going to be simple stuff. Yeah. But on the whole, if you were to take a sampling and you were say, I'm looking for just this specific stuff, you would find much more music complexity nowadays mm -hmm. uh, than you would back in Chopin's era, just because there's more ability to do it. We have sure. more understanding. You go to people that are um, uh, really pushing the envelope, and they are. You go to like Animals as Leaders is extremely creative in some of their stuff they do. Um, that kind of play thing. I mean, even going back to like Philip Glass, as much as you know, some of his stuff is considered to be like that. Some of his stuff is very intricate, and the way it's like, yeah. oh, he, he takes a new rule of you. I'm I'm only going to use these five notes and do a whole piece out of it. Yeah. So there's that stuff where it's very creative. Part of it is too is, is we've discovered most of what there's to be discovered at a basic level. So the new stuff is going to be out of your mind reach, right? Yeah. Until we in unless slash until we change the paradigm exactly i think theory. we are we are very much ripe for a kind of a renaissance of that where they kind of come back together but i don't know if that would happen easily or if we'll throw out completely throw out i don't think we'll throw out the music understanding i, I think there's inertia with it yeah. like you can't there's just, some fundamental stuff we've discovered yeah unless with unless we and have a total loss of knowledge yeah by any means it it's just there has to be some progression mm -hmm. somewhere i mean i like the rediscovering of some of the styles, like specifically like Celtic music mm -hmm. is another one that's been coming up recently. I love that. Um, rediscovering folk music and doing that. Bluegrass has tons of creativity. Specific genres do have a lot of creativity and a lot of stuff that's new. Yeah. But then like pop, it's just, that's the problem is that now what's popular is popular for the masses. And pop though does try on occasion when mm -hmm. it's when it's really actually interesting is right. it will incorporate little flares of right other genres yeah, yeah. and you it. get little standouts that like part, you know, too we're looking at when we look at uh Debussy and Chopin we have even like a good like a music theory person like myself could probably list 13 composers over the past 
three, 400 years. Yeah. If you were to select just 13 people from the last 50 years, yeah. you would get some really good stuff. You get, yeah. okay, we get Queen, we get Bob Dylan, yep. we get, you know, a couple of those people and, and just that, and those yep. are the people that stand the test of time. They're gonna be looked back and go, why is our stuff today suck? Well, that's because that was 1% of 1% of the stuff. Right. The cream of the crop. Yep. That's what survives throughout history. Totally. So there is that. I mean, you go back, there is, there's same plenty thing of with, classical with, music that's just so mundane and boring. Yeah, and same thing with like literature. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that oh, was yeah. written totally that we just forgot. Novels. Yeah, yeah, we just have forgotten all of yeah, that now. Yeah, totally. for every uh, Jules Verne, there was a thousand uh, Stephanie Myers, yeah. right? Of his time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, that's part of it too. I mean, it yeah. is getting simpler on average, but yeah, there's still stuff. It's just, it is hard to discover new things. And I also wonder too, like, like you were saying about um, a lot of the listeners of, um, of Chopin and, right. and those types of um, classical uh composers they were educated yeah how much of uh of <laughs> how much does music understanding play into your appreciation of music um it it's, it comes in a couple stages one is um it's actually so there's a there's a quote that's a little bit overused but it's a um what does he say when i first studied it's not Zen, but it's basically that when mm. I first started studying the ideas of Zen, mm -hmm. uh, that mountains or before I sorry, before I studied Zen, mountains were only mountains and rivers were only rivers. Mm -hmm. Then when I studied Zen, mountains were no longer mountains and rivers were no longer rivers. Once I became began to understand Zen, mountains were once again mountains and rivers were once again rivers. So it's that thing you go through of like when you don't know anything about music, my mom loves to grab me and go, look at this kid on America's Got Talent. Isn't this so good? And I look and I go, yeah, that's not that good. Like I can't, I have zero appreciation yeah. for that. Yeah. And I, I mean, she loves it. And yeah. I, I mean, and there are plenty of stuff that like I can't stand Justin Bieber music. That's actually a great point. You become almost, uh, yeah, you filter out right. a good chunk of what you might've once appreciated, right. but in, and replace it with something It loses the magic else. a little bit. You're yeah. like, okay, I know how it's done. Yep. But then you reach a point where you go, Oh, now I can see the complex. I can understand the complexity of what they're doing. Yeah, like somebody who doesn't have the understanding can listen to a, a piece by Chopin will be very much the same to them as like, uh, you know, like a, a Nine Inch Nails piece where they're becoming maybe a little bit more intricate in their picking pattern. Yep. Right? Yep. It sounds just as good to them. Yeah, it's like with somebody who like has the study can go. Oh, wow! I've never you could. They can hear things in there that you couldn't. Yeah, and so the, you have different levels of, of appreciation for it. And I don't know which ones. I, I think I I like having the understanding. Yeah, but you definitely it's like the same thing of when you learn something you you trade something for it. Yeah, you you definitely trade that. No, it's true. Again, to relate it back to my career path you can like uh, it loses some of the magic and mystery right when when you kind of understand something to a deeper level but at the same time you now understand it which yeah. is kind of cool when you go in javascript all of a sudden the yeah. pop-ups seem a little bit less like yeah they do that like oh, oh i remember I that when <laughs> yeah when like looking at user interfaces mm -hmm. was like mind-bending like how the heck does that right. work and then now you know i do it all the time so yeah it's like it's cool. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Good job. But why didn't you do this? <laughs> yeah, it's more. It's more interesting. Uh, like seeing really complex applications that aren't um, that are bug free or, right. or very few. But bugs. you couldn't. Have, you yeah. couldn't have appreciated that before. You as a friend and user, because you wouldn't even know what right. to appreciate. Exactly. That's, that's really impressive. Right. But like, it also does make you. I will say, yeah. On again, on this tangent. 
uh, looking at like any app on my iPhone, unless it's a really crappy app, right? Um, you know that someone spent a lot. Oh yeah, of time. On you that. can appreciate that. Years, that's interesting. That's a nice yeah. thing where you're like, oh wow. Good like, job. Even a simple thing, like, wow, they put some time into that. hundred and, and you'll look at like comments that are all negative and you're right. like, oh, it sucks. <laughs> because that person it's there's probably multiple people that put in, you know, a right. chunk of their life into oh, that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, same thing with music though, too, because it, it, it amazing pieces could take months, if not oh, years, yeah. to write. Right. And they're all it, all it takes is one critic to be like, no, uh, it sucks. <laughs> yeah. And then you feel that. I know when I'm playing a piece, uh, like it's usually, there's usually one person in the audience that I'll be worried about. Like I had to do a, a play for one of my cousin's weddings and one of my aunts is like a, a pretty accomplished classical pianist. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I've, I've already got this song to the level where the audience, nobody's going to know the difference. I feel good about this, but I, my aunt is going to be there. <laughs> I got it. She's going to know every wrong note I play. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Nobody else will, but you play to those people. It's like, yeah, yeah those are the those are people you want to impress. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, because what do you care about some rando that you don't exactly. even know? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's nice. Their applause is fun, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you can impress the the person you actually know, right. that's way more satisfying. Oh, yeah. Totally. No, I get it. Well, I think this is probably a good place to uh, leave off. There we go. That was fun, man. <laughs>